Terry! Terry! I've told you a hundred sticks of gelignite. Fifty isn't enough to blow out a candle, let alone crack open that bunker door. And why is it sweating? I've told you I don't like sweaty jelly. You'd think you'd know better after that Egyptian job went tits up. Oh hi! Welcome to the Christmas episode of the 40 to Doomsday podcast, Australia's least prolific yet longest running Doctor Who podcast. After the raging success and interest surrounding our previous episode, Unleash the Hoarder Indeed, I've resigned from work, turfed my family, and am now devoting myself wholeheartedly to excavating this unbelievably fascinating site. Call it the Doctor Who equivalent of Oak Island Syndrome. If only I could find a skull with a pentagram carved into it, that power would set me above the... Terry, tell that fool in the excavator not to run over that pile of blue film cans. There's gold in them, Terry. I don't care if they're stamped return to Nigeria, they're mine now. What? The scaffold? Fuck the scaffold and the chocolate eclair, son. I'm talking real quality. Measure the length and feel that width. Anyway, because I'm on site, in an underworld you might say, managing tunnelling operations, negotiating underground access rights with the local Silurians Terry managed to wake up, cracking open bunkers, tossing my salad with the vinegar, and disentangling piles of reel-to-reel tape, I can't make this latest episode. However, Mark, Richard and Dave will be taking you through the following. The lads discuss the death of Chris Boucher, that legendary writer for Doctor Who and Blake Seven. They also go in-depth with the power of the Doctor, especially from Richard's perspective, and all that Disney cash. They then jump into the convention anecdotes, good and bad, in their experience in Australian conventions. And then they look at Target Book Club, especially with reference to Daleks. And finally, that fan favourite, Fan Wank of the Year Award 2022 style. For the love of God, Terry, the X-rated porn on the beta tapes goes in my car. My car, I said. There are collectors who pay top dollar for smutty beta. Marilyn Chambers is still hot property for God's sake. Hang on, who's that fellow waving at us from the top of that cliff? What's he talking about, Terry? Something about a dynamite plunger? I'm Mark. I'm Dave. And I'm Richard. And welcome back to this 8th annual 42 to Doomsday staff Christmas party. How are we guys? The scary thing is that 8 years is only a fraction of the time we've known each other. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> I'm well, thank you, I'm well. And you Richard? Yes, great to be here as always, Mark. Well, last time we got together was in uh, August. I had the pleasure of listening back to that on the bus trip from Gallipoli back to Istanbul. Oh, so, show uh, off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My condolences. Very good. There's a bit of a, a Rob-shaped hole in the room again. Uh, Rob is still in the hoarder's house looking for Power of the Daleks. Uh, he wants to maintain his record that he's found more Power of the Daleks than uh, Phil has. So uh, he's still there. He'll be dropping in by the time capsule, <laughs> a la Three Doctors style or Seance, whichever one works better. Congratulations to you guys on that episode and Aaron as well. That was a very, very enjoyable episode, which 
just looking at social media, made some waves right across the planet. Yeah, it did. Not all of them factually accurate. <laughs> Thank you, everybody who sent us feedback on, on that episode. And uh, look, end of the day, we just basically pressed the record button, let Aaron chat about what was going on there. In the shop, he was getting phone calls from people in Canada, UK, about about the collection that he, he'd obtained. And uh, would you be like part with it? And it was actually quite a little bit overwhelming sometimes when you're looking at your phone, you've got like 40 or 50, 60 notifications going on and, and you know, certain big names and fandom were definitely reaching out. So, yeah, it was um, it was wow. quite humbling. Yeah. We should probably point out as well, if you're somebody who discovered 42 to Doomsday with that episode and you had a very factually insightful, <laughs> sometimes sometimes <laughs> moving, sometimes t- touching story about a about this situation, very, very serious. That's not the vibe today. No, no, not at all. We're going back to regular programming, I think. <laughs> I think you'd probably be safe to say. And unfortunately, we start off with a bit of sad news. Uh, news came through this week that the last remaining 70s Doctor Who writer had passed away, and that was Chris Boucher. So uh, Chris Boucher obviously wrote one top-shelf Doctor Who script, i.e. Robots of Death, one great Doctor Who script, Image of the Fendale, and one not too bad, a Doctor Who script, Face of Evil. But of course, Chris Boucher is known for his work on that awesome series, Bergerac. Yes. <laughs> and The Bill. And The Bill. And, but I could know. And Juliet Bravo. And Juliet Bravo. And Shoestring. I'm going to go with Star Cops, but yeah, go But on. all jokes aside, his uh, work on, on, on Blake 7 is. Uh, is what he's best known for. So, of course, with me, I've got the two uh, co-hosts of the fantastic Blake 7 Spacefall with me. So let's have a quick talk about uh, Boucher's work on Doctor Who and also his uh, legacy on Blake 7 as well. well. I'll probably start by saying your ranking of the stories, I'd probably swap Face of Evil and Image of the Fender. Really? Maybe, but... Probably would as well, but I think they're all top shelf. Look, look mm. Robots of Death is a top five Doctor Who story. Yep. I think that is just superb Doctor mm. Who. But the others, I think, are both classics. They're both very, very well written. Mm. I think for me, with Face of Evil, the direction's a little bit... Um, that, look, look, that's, that's probably, okay. That's probably fair. I mean, the script for the day God went mad is exceptionally clever. Mm. <laughs> and, uh, and, th- and that's, that's you know, the, the mark of Chris Boucher. Yeah. But you know, having written three very, very strong Doctor Who scripts... Absolutely. Having created and then really mm. developed the character of Leela... Yeah. And, and let's face it, if you want to have your character you know really well written and developed having her first eight episodes written by chris boucher and then the next couple by terence dix and a couple more by robert holmes is a pretty good way to start compared to say having you know your first dozen episodes written by pip and jane baker <laughs> as happened to somebody yeah imagine poor old leela's first story would have been underworld poor thing yeah oh um, god yeah. but yeah he i mean look we all we all know the story that he then got picked up somebody so dave maloney started as the producer of like seven and said to Robert Holmes, hey, come and be my script editor. And Holmes said, look, I've just done the best part of four years on who I'm burned. No, but this Chris Boucher guy is awesome. Hmm. Go and talk to him. Yeah. Yeah. And and look, I mean, we can go into a bit more depth, but if you ask the question who had the biggest influence on making Blake 7 the exceptional TV show it was, I think there are two contenders and one of them is Chris Boucher and the other is Paul Darrow. (laughs) Um, but, but, and, and, but the fact that those two work so so well together mm. and so in sync together, um, and, and Boucher really is the one consistent element yeah, behind the camera um, yep. all the way through. On Spacefall, we even have a segment called "What Cool Lines Did Chris Boucher Give Avon This Week?" So it shows his skill with dialogue yeah. um, and crafting great stories. And, and that's the thing you see right from Robots of Death. That opening scene where all the crew of the sand miners mm. are just sort of kicking back in the lounge. Yep. And yeah. you quickly work out what sort of people they are, 
what sort of civilization they are. You know, you get this idea that you know one of them is a bit of a joker, one of them is a bit of a boring old man. You know, one of them is the the, the slightly um, chip on the shoulder commander. Yep. You know, one of them is a bit of a toff. You you you, you realize really quickly what sort of characters these characters these are mm. um, when he gets to write his own Blake Seven scripts. Some of those first ones, something like Shadow and Weapon. Now, well, neither of them are classics, but they're both solid, just full of like line after line yep. of really yeah. good dialogue. Well, mm. One's certainly better than the other, shall we say? One is but, better than the other, and that, that's probably yes. as a director. But the, the, you're the, the, right, the and look, really, by the end, you sort of have that initial block of Terry Nation written scripts. But by the you know midpoint to end of the second season, Blake Seven is Chris Boucher's show. Yes, yes. Terry Nation, bless him. Uh, yeah, their reputation, especially around Dalek Master Plan, is basically giving a napkin, say, here you go, expand this out. And I'm pretty convinced of Blake Seven that was, apart from the first season, Boucher did a lot, 90% of the heavy lifting on the rest I suspect of it. by the time we get to episodes like um, Bounty and Deliverance, there is probably more Chris Boucher and less Terry Nation, shall we say. Yes, as, but, as we discussed on the, on the podcast... That was more to do with the production schedules of the time. For sure. Yeah. And, and, and literally, and, Terry, and Nation, Terry Nation admitted he'd run out of ideas. But Look, look he mm. did, but he, he also said, look, <laughs> you can have a second draft of episode 12, yep. or you can have a first draft of episode 13. Which do you want? Yeah. Um, and I think it was probably the same with Dalek's Master Plan. When you're writing that many episodes in that small amount of time, you can either have really good second and third drafts of the first episodes, or you can have a workable first draft that the script editor can work on. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's probably a little bit unfair to Terry. But this, is, this isn't about Terry, this is about Chris Boucher. And I think that had Chris Boucher not made the jump to Blake Seven and had continued to be commissioned to write Doctor Who, he would probably be thought of up there with Robert Holmes. Because I think his, his stories and writing are very, very good. It's just the lack of numbers that, he's, that, he, that, that holds him back. True, true, although I guess you probably would have hit that sort of John Nathan Turner wall where he suddenly decided he really didn't want you know, a lot of remnants of the past and whatever. He wanted all new ideas and all new writers, etc. So, to, to be honest, in some ways, Blake Seven probably came at the right time because he, he potentially would have only had another couple of opportunities to write for who. No, that, look, that's absolutely true. I think it would have been wonderful to have a Boucher written script edited by Christopher Bidmead. I think that could be really, mm. really fun. And, and certainly working for that more sombre Tom, I think would have been a really yep. good opportunity that yeah. was missed. Yeah. I still shake my head when in 1981, when Blake Seven finished, there was a vacancy in the Doctor Who script editing department that Boucher wasn't tapped on the shoulder. Yeah, look, I just think that, you know, his writing really, really was exceptional. His character was mm. exceptional. Mm. Uh, my favourite Blake Seven episode is Rumours of Death, which was a Chris Boucher episode and one that he put a lot of work into. And some of the dialogue in that is just spectacular. Mm. And the concepts and the way that he just sells things with just minimal but effective lines is really, really effective. And, you know, I talk about him as comparable to Robert Holmes, and I think that does stand up. And I think that Holmes thought that as well, because when Holmes passed away, the person that Mrs. Holmes rang and said, can you tell all these friends at the BBC, was Chris Boucher. Mm. So clearly there was a very close mentor relationship between the two of them. They, they were genuinely close. Also, his um, work on the BBC books, he did that book, Corpse Marker. Have you guys read that? He did. That's a very good I book. I actually really like that book. Yeah, yeah. Four or five? I only read that one, I'll be honest with you. He's a couple, yeah. I don't know how many. Yeah. Uh, at least four. But I definitely read Corpse Marker. I thought it was a really good book. I never dipped into the Candor City range, unfortunately. You guys listened to that at all? I, we've been right through Caldor City. I think with the BBC books, I think it was very much a case. He sort of tapped into each of his Who stories. The first one, I think, was kind of a bit of a callback to The Face of Evil. Corpse Marker is obviously a callback to The Robots of Death. Yeah. There's sort of a one 
quite loosely linked to Fendale. I think uh, Match of the Day is the last one. Mm. Um, and I think that's probably got a slightly more Blake Seven sort of slant to it. His favourite Blake Seven, just going back to the script, he wrote Rumours of Death. He also wrote Star One, which I think is an amazing episode. Yes. Yeah. Um, he did also, of course, write the finale. Yes. Spoilers for Spaceful listeners. I believe, actually, his favourite script that he worked on was Death Watch. And that doesn't surprise me, because Death Watch isn't a story you think of as a classic. But any time I put that on, I'm mm. just amazed at how well written that is. Mm. It's a very fun and enjoyable script. Yeah. Our connections with classic Doctor Who are continuing to fade. I think Philip Hinchcliffe is sort of the big behind-the-camera person who's still yeah. around from yeah. that yeah. era, but yeah. the companions are dropping off. Touchwood, Tom is still with us and hopefully will be for a while to come. But yeah, but yeah that era is... I mean, it's a while ago now. Yeah. Vale, Chris Boucher. Now we move on from one writer who could write to one who couldn't write. So, Richard... <laughs> We've had Dave's views on uh, Power of the Doctors, Power of the Doctor Who uh, shows uh, Hot Take. Rob and myself and Rob Lloyd did one as well. More of a cold shower. And now we're going to ask you for a bit of a hot flush in less than three minutes. Your thoughts on Power of the Doctor starting now. Now. Thanks very much, Richard. No. And now I know. You started for 10 minutes. Sorry. No, no, no. Look, I'll start by saying, look, overall, look, I didn't mind it. I thought there were some really good aspects to it. I thought the return of Ace and Tegan was well handled. Mm. Um, I thought they got probably just the right amount of stuff to do. And look, it was really good to see that they got a moment with each of their doctors. Yeah. Probably just to have that sort of little coda or whatever you want to call it. Mm. I will say I actually liked Jodie Whittaker's regeneration because... I do remember watching both Matt Smith's and Peter Capaldi's and, you know, they're going on about uh, Peter Capaldi like never eat pears and stuff and it was just, oh, for God's sake, just get on with it. <laughs> die, you um, bugger, die! Yeah, it was. <laughs> like that death in Bogner thing out of the <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> die, you bugger, die! Exactly. Um, but I actually liked the way they handled that. It was really, well, let's get on yeah. with it and see what happens. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. I thought that was really good. I don't think the Daleks were really necessary, just thinking about the, the villains, that they really mm. didn't add very much, I don't think. Your thoughts on the Caesar Romero of Masters? <laughs> I've never really got a lot out of Sasha Dwan's Master. I think he's far too OTT. It's all, this is the day you die type yeah. enunciation. It's just, look, I get he's there to be the pantomime villain, but it's just, it's too over the top. I did think he had dialed his performance down a fraction in this. I say a fraction. Mm. But, yeah, look, I, I don't know. I, I can't honestly say his interpretation of the Masters one that's ever really grabbed me. I hope that's probably... that. That's it for him. Yes, if we're resetting, you know, maybe we can reset the Master too. Um, He's making Anthony Ainley look like Sir John Gilgood, isn't he? Really? <laughs> his performance. But I know, more, Dave, more I know steel, Dave likes him. More though. steel. More steel. But I know Dave has the opposite I, view. I think he's probably, with the exception of the four minutes we've got of Derek Jacobi, I think he's probably the best master we've had in the new series. I, I really quite like his performance. I think that there actually is light and shade to it. I, I know that, yes, sometimes that, that manic stuff can overshadow the rest, but look, mm. I think it's there. But it was the same with Ainley. You know, Ainley's more pantomime-esque moments did overshadow some really oh, for good sure. stuff, mm. particularly in stuff like Legopolis and Survival. <laughs> um, maybe not the King's Demons. <laughs> <laughs> But look, look, I thought it was good. Look, look, the two points that I just sort of want to make... Yeah, has your view changed after your hot take? Not really. And and look, I think what we found was that for a New Who story, there was an amazing consensus around the majority of fandom on this one, which all seemed to be, look, we all love the stuff we were meant to love. It was great to see those old Doctors back. Everyone said McGann was awesome and deserves to get a spin-off. 
We all love those moments with the old companions. William Russell, particularly for us older fans, mm, really grew well, up. Well, yeah, that was actually that was, the one point I had, and that probably is my absolute highlight out of that episode. And look, I'm sorry, because the other, what, hour, hour and 28 minutes or something is probably blown away by, by one scene at the end. Yeah, but so that look, was the absolute highlight for me, yeah. seeing him. Look, likewise, and I think you know, everybody said they really enjoyed those scenes. Everybody more or less said the plot was absolute nonsense and didn't has sold up to any scrutiny whatsoever. No. But but who cares? It was there for those moments and ended with a strong regeneration. So there was a remarkable consensus in fandom. But the other point I wanted to make, which is interesting, is that fandom also seems to have just switched off the Whittaker Chibnall era incredibly fast. And all the conversations were just within days were about what's happening next. What's Tenor going to be like? Is he really a doctor? What's Bad Wolf doing? Who's the companion going to be? What's Shitty Gatwa going to be? What's his costume going to be yeah. like? There's a lot of energy around the new era, mm. and it feels like the Chibnall era was just like, right, done, put that in a drawer and move on, yeah. in a way that I haven't seen for a very long time. There was no day of mourning, really, was it? It was basically, it was a bit of, bit of morning glory, I think. It was like, no. well, that was all done, and the next day it's all brand new again, and Bad Wolf is sending out tweets and doing all that, and, and sort of starting to pep up the machine again, as it were, and DWM is rebranded as well to tie in with the, yeah. the relaunch of the show, and uh, yeah, so it's... I, a, I think that's a good way of putting it, that that lack of mourning period was, I think, very obvious. Mm. Part of it is probably that a lot of people are quite ambivalent to the Whittaker era. I don't think it has as many haters as people think it does, but I think a lot of people just... just in, It's in, there. In, enjoyed it, it was yeah. there, it had good mm. and bad episodes and people moved on. But I think the protracted nature of it, really sort of only two and a half series over a very long time, in part because of COVID, in part yeah. because of the pacing that Chibnall wanted for the series, mm. meant that Whittaker was there for a very long time for quite a small output. Hmm. And I just think people had kind of moved on by the time we got to her regeneration. So. It's particularly with that year of just specials. And I'm okay with the eight episodes a year approach as long as it comes out every year. I'd rather have eight when the show relaunched in 2005. Originally it was eight episodes until BBC Worldwide then said actually make it 13 so we can sell it. Um, but I'd rather have eight episodes a year consistently every year as opposed mm. to six and then two and you know does, things like that. So yeah, I'm does, like, I'm does, does the Disney money, the influx of that sweet sweet Disney money, mean that uh, they might up the episode count? No, I think it'd be more on effects. Yes, I think that's right. I think the Disney money is going to be concentrated. Yeah, and so we'll get much more expensive, better looking episodes mm. rather than spreading it out and having the same sort of quality but more of it. Yeah. Where they might be spending the extra money could be the spin-offs. There are lots of rumours about mm. that sort of content. Cer yeah, okay. Certainly, I think yeah. Russell T Davies would like that idea of where Star Wars wanted to be prior to COVID, which is that basically every week you have a new episode of something in Star Wars. Now, that hasn't quite panned out the way mm. it was because of a lot of delays and because the series have been um, truncated. But, yeah. but that idea that you, know, you go through a series of Mandalorian, then you have a series of Boba Fett, then you have a series of Andor, and then you're back to the next series of Mandalorian... Mm. Davies, I think, wants to do that. Mm. Whether they have the money and the capacity to do it, we'll find out. Yeah. But it's certainly on the cards. And the new unit spin-off as well, with uh, Kate Stewart and Eve Miles, allegedly. That uh, threw John Barrowman over the edge. So, John Barrowman, hey? Well. <laughs> Poor John. One of the things, just thinking about Disney, there's been no definitive announcement whether this Disney deal includes the classic series, has there? No. No, okay. Certainly rumours that they're going to buy it all and take it off Britbox and put it all up, which I'll be totally on oh, yeah. for because yeah. I haven't is, got Britbox. Yeah. Which is interesting because my, my, probably my reservations, just to sort of shift the conversation slightly, my reservations probably around Disney 
were how they would approach something like the classic series because let's be honest there are elements in there you get, yes okay it's great you're getting Doctor Who in front of more eyeballs and there's obviously more money and there's more opportunities to market and promote it and that sort of stuff but you're potentially also putting it in front of people, more people who may have a problem with some of the content. You know, the obvious one being something, say, like Talons of Wang Chiang. Or um, from the Pit. Yes, that, that don't maybe meet the Disney content standards. They'll just put a disclaimer like they did on BritBox for Talons. Will they? Or yeah. will they maybe just quietly drop it from no, the... Uh, no, no. They'll do, they'll do some CGI thing. They'll probably get Gary Russell to do some animation or something on the... I was going to say, they haven't got Breakfast at Tiffany's on uh, Disney. <laughs> <laughs> Not yet, no. Or, or do we suddenly, I was about to say, or do we now get, is there now a Disney content director or something who now sits in at the script read-throughs? Oh, look, they're absolutely got, they have a, a, a say in what's going on. Absolutely, mm. they're pouring a cash in. It would be a logical extension that they want you know, some sort of say in what's appearing on their screen. Well, well hang on, there's, there, but there's a, there's a genuine real-world precedent for all of this mm-hmm. and that is the Muppet Show now Disney dropped all of the Muppet Show and they did all of the episodes mm. now some of them did come with disclaimers uh, the Spike Milligan one particularly <laughs> yes I could believe that <laughs> that, that, that yeah. came with a warning at the front that just said you know this is of its time and some of the views are not views of today and yep. please you know if you don't like that don't continue watching but but they dropped all of those episodes and look I did watch the Spike Milligan episode <laughs> and I I did cringe particularly at the it's a small word after all stuff at the very oh, end yeah. that is not politically correct let's just no, say no um, and, and you know look I'm pretty tolerant of the fact that people had different views a long time ago but even I cringed watching that one back but Disney did play it it just had a okay. warning at the front so I, I think that that's probably a very good precedent of where yeah. they'll go no, fair enough, because I was thinking that if you take it to a logical extreme, will we see Doctor Who's equivalent of Gina Carano? That's John Barrowman, isn't it? Well, <laughs> how does Barrowman play out now? He won't. If you're bringing back a show like Doctor Who, the yeah. last thing you'd want is having yeah. Barrowman associated with it. And, and while we did risk a relaunch when you're having the Daily Mail bringing back more stuff that he did you know, many years ago and everybody knew about it anyway. Yeah, but they're still releasing the Ezra Miller version of The Flash, so... Oh, yes, you know, yes. <laughs> um, and, and what Ezra Miller is alleged to have done yeah, is, is slight, significantly yeah. worse yes. than what Barrowman is alleged mm. to have done. That's not to excuse Barrowman, but sorry, there are degrees and degrees and Ezra Miller allegedly is considerably worse. Absolutely, yes. Um, whereas, you know, good, kind soul Henry Cavill has been dropped. So Yes, indeed. I, I actually think that it's very hard to predict what Disney will do and they're not the slaves to popular wokeness that people think. They're slaves to the dollar. They're slaves to the shareholder. And well, I think they have recently come out and said it's all about the all about the profit now. I think isn't well, it? That's so, what they, that's what they got their old CEO back, didn't they? Mm. So yeah. if they think that they can still make half a million dollars with Ezra Miller, they will put him out. Yep. If they think that they're going to take a wash on it, then they may not put it out and just take the tax loss. And speaking of half a million dollars for fees, we're now going to talk about our favourite and not so favourite convention anecdotes. So welcome to the main topic for this Christmas special edition of 42 to Doomsday, where we were chatting about what would be fun to discuss, and we thought, over the years we've met a lot of people from Doctor Who at conventions. Some have been fantastic moments that are worth sharing, some have been less fantastic moments, which might make for entertaining <laughs> moments. And, and look, there have been a couple of good moments there, so we just thought we'd throw out there a few of our fondest and most entertaining memories from cons and from meeting the stars of the show we love. 
Let's go with Richard. My goodness. Well, the first Doctor Who person I met, I think, would have been when Mark Strickson came to the Doctor Who club here in Victoria. Is that in 88? That was in 88 when yep. he just moved out here. Yep. He was doing yep. the rounds. The rounds, of the, yeah. Yep, doing the rounds of the fan club. Yeah. Because I remember he had his, his wife at the time, Julie Brennan, with him. And I think Paradise Towers either was just about or had just been on TV here, I think. It hadn't yet because we didn't know who she was. And, yeah. I, and I remember, because I was at that event at the age of about seven, hmm. and I do remember everybody sort of talking about, well, this is my character, and this is what it does, and you'll see it very soon. And then I remember watching it on the ABC, and sort of going, <laughs> oh, her. so that's her. Um, it's, it, I mean, copies from the UK may well have been circulating. Yeah. Mark, you probably have seen it. Yeah. But I know if you're, <laughs> I wait, if you're yeah. waiting for the ABC, we hadn't seen it yet, though. No. no. Yeah, okay. So I remember that. And then I think... I remember seeing the flyers for John Pertwee when he was here. Oh yeah, at, up, up in, in Brisbane, Brisbane yeah. um, in '90, and I, I'm I'm actually kicking myself I didn't go to that Likewise. now because that apparently was a great weekend. Yeah, um, I believe he was an amazing guest. I think probably the next one I saw would have been Mary Tam. I think when she came out for one of the Who Ventures, that would have been about '93. Mm-hmm. I think. And I believe um, gave one of the most disappointing opening statements of any guest you've seen. Look, she was, I think tired and jet lagged and whatever so look i will cut her some slack yeah i do remember the first question i think one of the very first questions she was asked when she came out on stage was like what was your favorite memory of being on doctor who and well she actually said she didn't remember very much about it and there was just sort of this collective (laughs) sigh i think around the room having said that i think once i showed her a few clips and that she actually warmed up and really once she really got into it opened up a lot more as the weekend went on. And, and um, so it's interesting, just as an aside, I think that a lot of the conventions I saw in that period and after, that was the format people started to, to default to as well, rather than relying on audience questions and things that mm. the guests may not know, actually just going through and showing a series of clips yep. and getting a reaction to it, sort of like the Tom Baker years, because that was far more likely to spark an anecdote or a memory than... For, for yeah. sure. Have uh, you tried Vegemite? <laughs> I think they also had at that one, uh, Mark Strickson came, I don't know if it was both days or just one day, and Katie Manning uh, did her usual appearance at the Sydney events as well. Yeah. Um, And sort of, yeah, she did sort of take over the thing for the couple of hours she was there. Mm -hmm. Well, then there was, of course, Survival here in Melbourne, the convention that that didn't provide a guest. Mm. I met um, Alexandra Tynan and Robert Jewell. Uh, probably around that because they we did a, a thing for the 30th anniversary. Okay. Um, and they came for that. And I remember going up to Newcastle uh, on the train to meet John Levine. It was initially going to be John Levine and Nick Courtney, mm. um, but I think Nicholas Courtney withdrew uh, due to health problems or due to health concerns. I think shortly before. Well, we just the didn't event. want to get in a play with John Levine. And I think Katie Manning initially I think agreed to be there as well. But that was around the time she would have been in the states running around with Ruby Wax and. Um, oh yeah. And yeah, Liza yeah. Minnelli. So, yeah, yeah. yeah, so it was just John Levine for the weekend. Interesting. Look, he was a very nice guy and he had quite a few stories. And no slight to John Levine. That was probably the convention where more meeting other fans and socialising and that probably started to take centre stage, mm. I think. And I probably spent far more time. And hello to Mark Corbin and all the guys up in Newcastle and Aaron Brockbank, if you're listening to this. I remember having an absolutely amazing evening in the bar. Uh, after the convention had finished, where we uh, watched Houseboat of Horror and got drunk. And it was great. (laughs) 
Well, that was memorable for all the, all the different reasons. Yes, all the different reasons. I remember going up, went to Who Ventured Again to see Elizabeth Sladen. Uh, that would have been 96. A three and a half day weekend. With yes, it was. Yes, that was um, that was interesting. I, I remember the convention. I think there was some some sort of big festival or something on in Sydney on the Saturday Sunday night. Because I remember the convention just stopped. Basically, half the committee and everybody just took off, and. The, the convention just sort of stopped. Just all the Victorians staying in the hotel. Yes. Well, and this is probably around the time, actually, I should say, with convention anecdotes, that the Victorians probably got a bit of a rep, I think, for um, sort of the party uh, <laughs> <laughs> the party boys of the, the scene. If, if anyone has good memories, there was uh, an ad for uh, Bundaberg Rum here in Australia that featured the uh, the polar bear oh, mascots yes, the polar bear, yes, turning yes. up to social events with bottles of Bundaberg Rum and, you know, kicking yeah. the party up a notch. Tagline was... Those bears know how to have a good time. <laughs> well, I do remember at a couple of the events we went to a bit later, it was very much sort of, those Victorians <laughs> know how to have a good time because it was pretty much wherever room we were in, that was where the room party was for a little while there. But we did get a bit of a rep. I think actually we even got one of um, one of the DWCA or Dallas Jones's Rabbits Awards for being the quiet achievers <laughs> Australian fandom. And probably the other anecdote I do have about that, I remember going up to, I think the Who Vention 2001, it was one with Colin Baker and Annika Wills, and the organisers of the convention, we had a suite, because there's five or six of us in our group, and we took a suite, and I do remember the organisers of the event doing the, oh no, when they realised that the hotel had put Annika Wills in the suite next door to us. <laughs> <laughs> Right. But yeah, look, I, I've got more, but I'll let someone else talk for a minute or two. Dave? Oh, look, there's a couple that I wanted to highlight. Uh, like Richard mentioned, the first person I ever met was Mark Strickson, mm. and I was seven going on eight at the time he came out, and I just didn't quite know what was going on. Like, I think I still wasn't quite understanding the difference between a character and an actor. Like, I knew, I knew that characters weren't real, mm. but I didn't quite know how to react to, here's an actor that plays a character. Yeah. So it was kind of just like going, that's Turlo, but not. He's in mm. jeans. What's going on? Um, so that, that Flintstones was, on them. He, he did. did have Flintstones on yeah, them. Yeah, yeah, Flintstones on yeah. Very good. Um, so yeah, didn't quite know sort of how how to take that. Mm. And then when I went to the Enlightenment convention at the age of ten, that you helped to run. Mark, oh yes. All the guests there were behind the scenes people. So Dudley Simpson, mm. uh, Sandra Reid, and Robert Jewell. So mm. Robert Jewell was in front of the camera, but behind a Dalek casing. So. Yeah. <laughs> or in a Zabi suit. Um, and, and they were they were really interesting conventions because they each got a couple of hours to really talk about their work and go yeah. back behind mm-hmm. the scenes into detail. Uh, again, Robert Jules sort of had points he wanted to make about being a Dalek operator and we were actors, we weren't just people in a casing, we were hired to do a proper job and sort of almost a bit of a chip on his shoulder about yeah. how, the, how people sort of thought about Dalek operators. Oh, yeah. um, he admitted that he had sort of no memory of playing a macro whatsoever, which, <laughs> you know, who can blame him? <laughs> Um, but but again, like just bumping into Sandra Reid, sort of wandering around the convention, just my dad and I chatting to her, and it's mm. like, oh, you can you can just talk to these guests. They're mm. they're they're people. Yes, was was something that was really interesting. Mm. And most of my con memories come from that personal interaction that we've had with yeah. guests. And yeah. I think that's sort of what I wanted to highlight. And when we had Sophie Aldred out here, Richard, for the Time Storm convention in '97, look, we were so busy running that convention, we barely had time to pick our noses, let alone. Yeah take part in it and anybody who's run a convention knows what that's like but mm. but those sort of evenings where we'll be just sitting around because we all stay at the hotel running right mm. the con and that one evening where we were just all sitting in the 
stairwell for the hotel drinking oh, scotch right. out of yeah. paper cups. <laughs> and, and Sophie came down and said, oh, you know, I'm not really sleeping. So I wander around. Oh, what are you doing? I said, oh, we're just drinking a bit of scotch. He's like, well, pass some over. <laughs> Sign me up, yeah. And uh, yeah, so there was Sophie drinking scotch out of a paper cup with us. And just, again, not telling sort of outrageous anecdotes or, you know, really blue anecdotes, but just sort of the more risque ones are the ones that, you know, might look bad if taken out of context about the professionalism of Sylvester yeah. McCoy or something. And again, it wasn't like, oh my God, you won't believe this about McCoy, but it's just, you know, this is something you mm. can't say on a DVD doco yeah. or you can't say in front of the stage. Yeah. You can tell those more human. And Sophie was really happy to tell those sort of stories and just a really nice person. Mm. She was. She was great. Yeah, I'm actually quite proud of Time Storm that we um, we managed to, to get that one off the ground and, and see it through to completion. She was an amazing guest. She worked mm. really hard over the weekend because she pretty much was the linchpin of the of the event. And didn't um, charge for autographs and made sure everybody got their share of yeah, autographs. Yeah, um, really available for fans. She hung around ages after the autographing sessions and things. I remember on the Sunday night, it was sort of a case, you know, we sort of pretty much pick her up and take her away so people would get the hint to leave because she was still, you know, still just quite happy talking yeah. to fans and taking photos for while, while we were sort of running around packing up. She was sort of in the corner, you know, and there was a queue of people still wanting to take her and say goodbye. And, and of course, her husband, Vince, came with her. New yes. husband at that stage and... Vince was sort of a lifestyle slash sport presenter mm. type person. And at the end of the con, we gave them a number of guests, you know, sort of a photo book of Australia, a copy of a Midnight Oil album, because we probably wouldn't have been able to put that con together without the background music of Midnight Oil. <laughs> oh, no, true. And uh, we gave her an Aussie Rules football. And because they're both very active, particularly Vince, they said, oh, well, look, show us how to kick it. So suddenly there's half a dozen of us and Sophie and her husband out the back of the hotel teaching them how to kick it Aussie football. Yeah. Playing a scratch footy match. There so, yeah, so that was, that was fun. The other one that's very similar that I wanted to highlight, and again, Richard, you were there. Uh, Mark, you famously weren't. We may even tell that story in a moment. And that is Fraser Hines. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, that was the first professionally run con that we turned up to. It was. It was when a company that based in New Zealand came out and ran a big, what we now think of as a Comic-Con style con. I, I yeah. think that actually was the first probably big pro con here in Melbourne. I it, think. it absolutely was, I'm fairly sure. And what it year was, was that? Uh, 1999, because it was the same weekend The Phantom Menace came yes, out. Yes, it was. That's oh, right. that's right. Yes, that's why I couldn't make it, yes. Uh, so it was, it was this big con with sort of 30 guests and, and all the rest of it, but it was very professionally run, and the guests were escorted to the stage, then escorted off the stage, and mm. then you had to pay for the autographs. It was the first time we'd really encountered mm. that level of professionalism. But Richard, Or commercialism. Or commercialism. Yeah. And Richard, you'd organised to do an interview for our fanzine with Fraser Hines. Yes, well, we got to meet him because he, he sort of come out, he was almost a... Because there was a lot of guests from other shows and stuff, and then it was just sort of, oh, and Fraser Hines from Doctor Who's here because they actually parked him for the weekend on the UK TV, the cable channel stand. Um, and he was just sitting there at, at different times, and, you know, you'd come up and you'd, he'd sign autographs and, you know, have a talk and whatever. And he did a couple of presentations on stage. I remember we had um, the Curse of Fatal Death. We took their little video off. They let us put the Curse of Fatal Death on. We had, like, a queue of people just standing there watching. Well, see, it hadn't been on anywhere here. Oh, it hadn't here. been on. Okay, yeah. Um, so a lot of fans hadn't seen it. So remember we had that just running on a loop on their little stand for a while. But, okay. um he was great. I got to spend a fair bit of time with him over the weekend. But, yeah, we agreed that he do an interview for us for Sonic. So we arranged to meet him um, in a pub down at the uh, Charles Dickens Tavern. Oh, yes. And, and, yes. and this was the, the real contrast you know, with this really commercially run mm. event. And the moment we said to Fraser, look, where do you want to do this interview? And he just said, well, can we go to the pub? And just completely want to get out of that yep. environment. Yeah. We didn't quite know what to sort of make because we were all at the pub and Richard sort of said, look, Fraser's on his way. And then Fraser came and it's like, okay, there's... 
a star of yeah. classic Doctor Who just at the table at the pub with us. And I can remember, because you guys all drank jugs of beer and I'm a, not a beer drinker, and apparently neither is Fraser, because... No, I, you had the wine, that's yeah, right. Yeah, I, I, I went up to get a glass of wine, and I sort of went to the bar, and suddenly Fraser Hines is with me. And he said, oh, you're drinking red or white? I said, look, I don't mind. He said, look, I like white. Um, if you buy the first bottle, I'll buy the second, and we'll work out the third. <laughs> and I thought, okay, that's the sort of night it's going to be. Yeah. Um, and, and we got, got quite drunk with Fraser Hines. We did, and, actually, and it was really, really good. Because I think Fraser's probably somebody... He has a fairly standardised, at, at risk of sounding a bit condescending, convention patter. He'll tell a lot of the same stories. Well, I think rather than getting there and having nothing to say or not yes. knowing how to react to questions, yes. he's got a prepared routine. He, he has. Unless you ask him a specific question, I, I think it tends to be much the same. But when we got down and we got in the pub and he, he sort of loosened up a bit, again, it wasn't really you know, scandalous stuff, but it was more just that human element of working with Patrick Trout and working with the other members of the cast and crew and being on location, etc. And, you know, just life working on Doctor Who in the in the 60s. And just stuff, again, you know, working with Patrick Trout and talking about how they would try and buy the same car because they liked each other's cars or they'd get stuff done. But also those sort of more human stories. And we now know a lot more about this stuff. Mm. But he would talk about on payday going getting a lift home with Patrick Trout and trying sort of having to stop in a couple of places to sort of hand out the alimony yes. and then, then sort of going, well, this is all I've got left for me. And, and I think we didn't really appreciate, I mean, this is 99, so it's over 20 years ago, we didn't really appreciate that side of Patrick Trout and that, yeah. that, that human yeah. thing. Mm. And, and again, Fraser was saying it as one of Patrick's closest friends. So you got a really sympathetic but honest feeling of what it was like to, yeah. to, to work yeah, with Yeah, and, and just to bring Mark into the story, yeah, later in the night, Mark and... and some of his friends had gone out to see The Phantom Menace. Mm. And at least one of them, I, I don't think, really believed that Fraser was going to be joining us at the pub that evening. Well, no, because before you and Fraser arrived, we rang a mutual friend of ours, Luke, hello if you're listening, and we said, hey, look, Fraser's coming to the Dickens, you've got to come to the Dickens, and thought we were just trying to get him to the pub that he didn't want to go, and no, no I'm going out with the, with the other guys. We said, no, mate, Fraser's coming to the pub. Yeah, 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 sure, guys, sure, guys, sure. And he just wouldn't believe us and yeah. went out to, with you guys to the Phantom Menace. Yeah, so later in the evening, when Fraser was a bit looser, we got him to make a phone call. And it was sort of along the lines of, Hello Luke, my name's Fraser Hines. I play Jamie in Doctor Who. I'm here at the pub with some of your friends. They want me to tell you that you're a soft option. <laughs> and literally... 30 seconds later, the phone went, don't let him leave, don't let him leave, we're coming in, we're going to be there in a few minutes, don't let him leave. Yeah. I, I think at that point, because you were with Luke. I said, I'll come, I'll, I'm there. Yeah. <laughs> and then, yeah. so, sorry guys, we've been here for four hours, but he's going now. Yes, he's going, I know, yeah, it was like, oh, it's such a shame. Yes. But look, it, it is those those more human moments that I think you know we do reflect on. Mm. Um, and then there are guests who are less inclined to do that sort of thing. And look, I know we touched on this when we did our sort of anecdotes. What was it? Our after dark anecdotes, oh, whatever yes. it was, a little while ago. Mm. But I think that's probably the thing I found that's missing from a lot of the pro events. You don't really get those moments to interact with the guest. It's you know you've got an hour on stage and at the end of your hour, get off. You know, you've got your set 30 seconds or not even probably when you get your autograph, hand over your cash, here's your signature, goodbye. Mm. Um, and you don't get that sort of, just that few moments just to actually meet the person. And someone who pushes against that still is Colin Baker. Mm. Now, we had met Colin before, Richard, at a yes. Sydney event where I paid and you just talked your way into the <laughs> exclusive Friday night cocktail party. And... <laughs> And again, Colin made a point of working the room. He came up, he saw I was wearing a, a football club shirt and sort of said, oh, 
you know, looked at the founding date and said, that's really old. I said, yeah, look, a lot of football's really old in Australia. It actually predates the Federation. And yep. then the Ashes were about to start up. That's and right. so we had a really good chat about the Ashes. And again, it's one of those things where you've got this guy who played an iconic character we all love, but just getting to talk about sport and about Australia and actually meet the guy exactly. was a far more entertaining thing to do. And then later on at a, another very commercial convention where it was one of those ones where the guests were all sort of whipped off the minibus, put on stage, made to perform, then sort of whipped and taken to the airport for the next day. And Richard and I were sitting behind a club table. And Colin Baker just wandered along and just started chatting oh, to us. We were across from the green room. We were across and it was the green a, room, yeah. And it was a glass sort of conference roomy type thing. And he was obviously sitting in there just, you know, waiting for the signal to, that he was allowed out, basically, yeah. to go on stage. And so he made a um, prison break. Yeah, so we sort of <laughs> waved at him through the glass. And he's obviously sitting there and he sort of, oh, and came out. And he was just standing at our table, you know, just, how you going, guys, and what's happening and whatever. We, I talked to him for maybe a minute. And then all of a sudden it was sort of like, warning, 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 unauthorised guest contact. Yeah. Um, and there were suddenly like minders just appeared and sort of, you know, cattle prodding <laughs> back into the... Well, but, but, but it, it was, but I remember that minder coming up, excuse me, Mr Baker, but you need to be, you need to be ready to leave, you should be packing your bags about now. And Colin's like, I've done this before, my bag's packed and ready to go, I'm chatting to these guys, just relax. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I suppose then you get the other extreme, like Paul McGann, who just really just sort of wandered down when he felt like it wandered away. <laughs> With a cup of coffee, just like, <laughs> <laughs> Paul, Paul McGann was an incredibly chilled dude. He was. Um, and, and look, my, my favourite moment with Paul McGann, other than meeting him, which was really, really cool, and we had a quick chat about Hornblower, and he you know, threw Ian Griffin under the bus, which was quite entertaining. But uh, when he was... This was back in the David Tennant era, so Christopher Eccleston sort of had just walked out on Doctor Who, and it was really kind of speculative raw. about just yeah. you know, how, how raw that was and how bad that was. And somebody asked... Paul McGann, the question, like, oh, you're a long-time friend of Christopher Eccleston's. Do you think he'll ever come back to the show? And McGann originally sort of just sort of tried to defer that a bit. Yeah, look, Chris and I both grew up, you know, I was in Liverpool, he was in Manchester, and so we're in a lot of the same companies and a lot of the same plays, and, you know, he's a really good guy and a really good bloke, you know, really, really of that area, and I really love that about him. And as he sort of he kept going on, the presenter said, yes, but do you think he'll ever be in Doctor Who? Oh, no, that's not going to happen. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, they, they, were, they were really, really good. But but look, that brings us to another comparison. Down the other end of the pool. Yeah. Um, look, I know that on this show previously, your mate Rob Lloyd Mark has um, spoken about meeting Peter Davison and not being all that impressed. <laughs> I guess. And and he was he's another example of somebody who look on stage. He's very professional. Mm. He's got his pre-scripted answers. He's got his anecdotes that he likes to tell. He and Janet Fielding have clearly got a banter worked out between them, mm. and they know that if they make a couple of jokes together at Matthew Waterhouse's expense, everyone's going to go, "Yay!" Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. laugh. Yeah, you know, it'll it'll get a laugh. He knows how to do that sort of thing. But I got a really strong impression he didn't want to chat to the fans at all. No. And when it came time to get the autograph, I don't know if you've seen that scene in Galaxy Quest <laughs> where, <laughs> yes. where where Tim Allen's a bit pissed off with the fans yeah. and he's just sort of signing the, the photos and flicking the back of them. Um, Peter Davison was very much like that. Uh, and there was another guest there who wasn't in the classic series. Oh, yeah, no, he would have been in the new series at that stage. Yes, he would. Um, we won't name them because this anecdote isn't a very favourable one. But the first interaction we had, we were a few people back in the autograph queue, and somebody got to this person's autograph and started talking look, at them. And look, this, well, it was this person... It was, it was quoting big sections of dialogue. Yeah, he was yeah. saying, oh, I really love your lines, I really love your lines, and then we'd start to do the lines at this actor. Mm. And, and look, it wasn't the most socially aware fan. I, I can accept that. Yeah. But this actor's response to that was, 
is there security anywhere here? Mm. And just trying to get this fan just like escorted away from yeah. him. Get away from yeah. him, yeah. And then, and then Richard, as you say, we were opposite the green room for most of the weekend on the club table. Now, there was a lunch that was a sort of <laughs> $500 a head gets you, front row tickets, first to the autograph queue, a photo, yes. and an exclusive buffet lunch with all the guests. And this particular actor we saw come down in the lift, poke the head out of the lift, make sure there were no fans around, sneak over to the yes. green room, get a plate full of sandwiches, sneak back out up to the lift and made sure they didn't speak to anybody. Yes. And the the contrast between them and somebody like Colin, who is very much of the view, I'm here for the fans, uh, was very, very obvious. So it sounds like that, that person there was trying to get out of there in the nick of time. <laughs> <laughs> that's one way of putting it. Yes, that's one way of putting mm. it, though. I would have sent them to the brig personally. But... Hey! <laughs> <laughs> um, another another sort of difficult moment at a convention that we saw, and it was a bit unfortunate, but it was just a very cack-handed moment from the one of the pre- presenter was when we went to see Katie Manning in Sydney, oh. and it was very very painful because she, she got up there and she, she spoke and everything, and then they said right we're going to auction off a copy of the Pertwee Years, at which point the MC turned to Katie and said, now of course John Pertwee only died recently, do you have anything you want to say about that? At which point Katie actually started crying and saying. It's still very raw for me. I have been really busy. I haven't had a chance to process this. And just a whole room sort of thought, why did you oh, have to go man. there? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that mm. was, that was, yeah. Not very tactful. <laughs> sort of Indeed. sharp intake of breath, I think. Mm. Not very tactful at all. Listen to us, obviously, uh, waffle on for a bit. Mark, what no, about no, you? No, no, no. I was interested because, obviously, I was at the Mark Strickson Day as well in 1988. That was my first experience with the Doctor Who actor, as it were, and, and, and his wife, Julie, was there. I actually gave her a um, copy of Paradise Towers a novel design and I've actually still got it it says to Mark Ice Hot from Julie Brennan but um, hmm. they had a dog at the time and apparently it was uh, Gerald Flood the guy who played Chameleon's dog uh, he couldn't look after the dog anymore so they brought that dog out to Australia when they migrated over so um, quite it's interesting pretty impressive considering but, we would have had to sit in quarantine for all that period of time but yeah, yeah. oh and Dave's got that book as well I didn't have Paradise Towers but I've just put off the oh, shelf oh Mordred Undead Mordred Undead signed by Mark and Julie Brennan yeah I saw it there you yeah go. but that's non-canon because she wasn't in it mate well, maybe Mordred Undead would be more exciting if you were. See, see, <laughs> see, see, I got Mark Strickland to sign Turlow and the Earthlink Dilemma. Ah. <laughs> well, at least they had the words Turlow in there, so it's fine. But the next time I saw Mark Strickland was in the early 90s, and I was walking out of work, and I saw this guy sort of walking towards me. He said, hold on. I stopped and said, Mark Strickland. He goes, yes. I'm sorry to tell oh, you, I'm a, do- I'm a Doctor Who fan. He goes, oh, hello, how are you? Blah, blah, blah. And we started talking. He goes... I suppose you don't know a guy called Richard Nolan, do yeah, you? Yeah, that was... Um, I'll fill in the blanks on that. It was actually 94. Was it really? Um, as late as that, because we had him... He came out here in 88. He obviously went to uni and everything here. And in the... Uh, around 94, 95, he'd finished his degree and he decided to move back home. Mm. And he, again, did the rounds... Uh, of the fan group sort of on a farewell tour. And and to drum up the fees to move back home. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he came to the Doctor Who Club Victorious. He came to our Christmas party that year. Right. Which was probably an interesting afternoon in itself because he sort of rolled up and... First thing he said was, oh, where can I get a drink? Not twigging. We sort of said, oh, well, look, there's, you know, cold cans or whatever over there. And he's like, no, no, I meant like a beer. We sort of like, oh. And we're at one of the university colleges. Mm. So I remember we sort of did this walk down to the pub down on Royal Parade somewhere, like a good 10, 15 minute walk. And we sat in the pub and drank with him for about an hour. Because mm. he, oh, we'll have one more before we go back. We'll have one more before we go back. And apparently the Christmas party 
had just stopped. Yes, the entire committee had gone to the yes, pub. Yes, had gone to the pub. Most of the and anyway, and then he came back and look, he was great when he was on stage. He was really engaging. Look, he's great with the fans mm. and all that sort of thing. But yeah, we paid him by check, mm. and he had lost the check. And yes, when he found you, it was like, well, did he know me? Because he needed a replacement. And check. I crossed the road from your work, and yes. I said, actually, yes, he's actually working in that building. <laughs> so I walked with Mark Strickland across the road. To a phone box outside and your building, running, yes. and I said, "Oh, hello, Richard. It's Mark here. Oh, there you go. I've got Mark Strickson here. There's someone here who wants to talk <laughs> to well, you. Yeah, exactly. I said, someone who wants to talk to you. It was Mark Strickson. Anyway, you sorted out the money and that sort of stuff. And I said to Mark, do you want to come to the pub? He goes, oh, I'll take out for a drink.' He goes, oh, I can't. I'm actually going to meet the English uh, cricket team for a drink. Oh, and I said, oh, okay, fine. Well, I'm not going to hang around with those guys then. Uh, so that was uh, that was my close encounter with Mark Strickson until I went wow. to Sydney to some con with him and Janet in the um, mid... Oh, God, that 2010, I think it was. Right. Louise Pajo, I remember seeing at a Doctor Who yes, club event. Yes, that was now, actually the Christmas party before. Yes, now Louise was in uh, Seeds of Death. Yes. Um, but my mum knew her more from Carson's Law. She a was. A big uh, legal drama in the early 80s. Uh, yes, she over was. Here with uh, right. Lorraine Bailey, uh, ex of the Sullivans. Um, and she was lovely, actually. She was a really nice lady. Um, lots of anecdotes about the story and uh, obviously was. about her time moving over to Australia and that sort of stuff, which is when you're engaging with Doctor Who actors, it's actually always better to talk to them about the non-Doctor Who stuff. For sure. Uh, yeah, so it's a bit... For, for sure. Well, she, we interviewed her for Sonic, I think, about six months earlier. Yeah, okay. Because she'd been out here for quite a while. She was yes. born in New Zealand and went to England and then settled out here. But she said she sort of went through a thing about every sort of five to eight years the next wave of fandom would suddenly discover that she lived in Australia and she'd mm. go through she'd, she'd deal with the next you know sort of next generation of fans basically mm. um, and we were about the fourth I think who'd, who'd sort of oh look Louise Payer lives here in Australia and you're, she's yeah. in the white pages yes. yes and your episodes all exist yes, yes. Yeah, I remember that. So, yeah, we did get her down. I think she was down in Melbourne for something, so she agreed to come. Yeah. Um, for, for she the was day. lovely. Yeah, she was. She was yeah. really nice. And I remember the uh, the Enlightenment 91 com- uh, convention. Dave, you mentioned I was on the organising committee. Yes, we had uh, Dudley Simpson and Sandra Reid and uh, Robert Jewell. Main memories of that convention were organising was I was the secretary at the time, so I was taking all the... Uh, or the bookings, you know, and, getting, and obviously making sure they're registered. And I had my trusty Commodore 64 computer. I had a little database there. And I put all the, all the attendees' names in there. And, of course, I take the computer down there and load up the disk. And the bloody disk is corrupted. Oh, no. So, uh, yes, it was a little bit uh, stressful. But we had Old school a, paper. Old school paper was the, was the way to go in the end. But the main thing I remember about that convention was, even though I was on the organising committee, we never got to spend any time with, with the, the guests. guests at all? No, the upper echelons of Victorian fandom took, uh, took the guests over to a, uh, a restaurant in St Kilda where um, yeah, they were oh. sort of fed him with a pasta meal while the rest of us were sort of stuck behind, you know, keeping things running. We talked about survival. Look, I'm not going to drag that up again. But survival did actually have a guest. One of the attendees there was in Sandra Reader, Alexandra Tynan. She was in her class at art college oh. um, and sort of said, oh, look, I can probably, do you want me to ring her? I'll see if she'll come, you know, happy to come down for the afternoon. Mm. And she did. And look, she was great. Short notice and everything. She was more than happy to talk about it. You know, again, I, I think it's probably a bit of a sigh when, what was it like creating the Cybermen? Uh, <laughs> when think, you said tinfoil to your shriek. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. but, but again, you know, I, I remember she came to quite a few things. You know, she put up with a lot probably from the DWCV yeah, over the yeah, years, I think, great. every time. Yeah. Every time there was an event of some sort. And, and one, one moment that I remember hearing about at Enlightenment from another member of the committee, Damien, who, again, Damo, if you're listening, hello. 
Uh, but he was basically buying the autograph cues for most of the weekend. And he said it was just so amusing watching this because it was very... Because Fernand was very amateur at the time and really yeah. didn't quite know how this all sort of worked. And so he'll be sitting there with Dudley Simpson next to him and someone will come up, oh, hi, could you please sign my Target novel? Yeah, of course I can. Ah, Frontios. That's, that's about five years after I finished on the show. Oh, yeah, it's the only, it's the only Target I've got with me. Oh, no, that's fine. I'll, I'll sign it. But but you just make sort of, you, you think of just how unprepared and unpolished we were. I'm going to actually add to that because I got Dudley Simpson to sign my Doctor Who The Music Volume 1 on vinyl. Sort of took it and his face went a bit crestfallen. I couldn't work out why. Then I realised... It actually had none of his music oh, on it. No. So, uh, yes, that was my Frontios on vinyl. <laughs> but um, yeah, speaking of that convention, there was a, a DWB uh, publication. Oh, it's called the, the Compendium, I think it was. And there's a picture of Sandra, Dudley and Robert on the steps of the uh, outside the, the, the hotel where we have the convention. And there was a barbecue. We were cooking a barbecue in the background. And in this picture, there's a picture of my uh, upper torso. <laughs> Back to the camera with a bit of my ass there, so You're I'm legit. gonna. I'm legit, so I'm gonna uh, find that picture and uh, <laughs> anybody wants an autograph, I'm more than happy to uh, to, to do it. Oh, but um, yeah, obviously Sandra Reid, uh, she was excellent, and Dave showed me a picture of his Tenth Planet book, and it was signed in 1991. Today, best wishes from the Cyber Mom, Sandra Reid. Yeah, she was lovely. And after that, look, I then got sucked into the big con things, literally, you know, in terms of the Lords of Time. VIP package of the Davison and Colin Baker and, and, and Paul McGann and um, paid the money for the dinner with Davison as it were and you're right the anecdotes trot you know trot out and he mentioned the Matthew Waterhouse one I said actually you know what on the commentary for Kinder Matthew quite strongly challenges him coaching Richard Todd and all sort of stuff he goes oh I hadn't heard that and everything like that but the main thing out of that convention was um, guests are on the stage and, and uh, the host and I use the word uh, loosely was uh, asking some very bad questions and all of a sudden he hears a bit of fracas in the background and then all of a sudden you see these like security guards and it looked like uh, Oak and Quill out of uh, Fury from the Deep sort of shuffling <laughs> towards the front and all I heard was this the host on stage go 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 because a fight I thought he was Burnside yeah exactly go 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 because a fight had, had broken out in the toilets between two Doctor Who fans at the oh, event. Wow. Oh, so, yes. Okay. Yeah, there was, there was a big fight going on. So, obviously, 30 years of grudges had um, exploded over in the men's room, and the fight continued out into the foyer. Oh, my goodness. And you hear yes, a couple, of, yes, you hear a couple of ladies shrieking, stop, stop, stop. Anyway, so, the, look, You're the fight... Doctor Who convention. Yeah. Why somebody think of the children? Exactly. So, the fight uh, did get... Uh, <laughs> to get subdued but apparently there was a police report on both of those individuals oh, made so well yeah. I mean Dave and I were in an event one of the events in Sydney uh, the one with Sylvester McCoy and Nicola Bryant yes and there was a altercation between two fans there that resulted in a chair being thrown that yes the problem was the chair was thrown at another fan yes but missed him and flew very close to Sylvester, Sylvester McCoy, McCoy. Oh. at which point <laughs> Mr. McCoy very quickly exited the yes, room yes which was sort of okay I think the night's over <laughs> yes and, and yes like one later in the weekend, one of the two fans, uh, my memory is, was asked to leave. Yeah, but yeah, you're absolutely right, Mark. Obviously, there are lots of personalities in fandom, and mm. some get on very well. Look, I mean, we've been mates for thirty years. Yeah, others don't. Yeah, and uh, when you're stuck in a convention <laughs> for a full weekend, sometimes Correct. Friday night to Sunday afternoon, yeah. usually not getting much sleep. Usually a bit of alcohol involved. Yeah. And there's also, I think at some of these pro events, not a lot to do when the guests aren't on stage Correct. or you're not queuing for autographs. Correct. Yes, sometimes yeah. these are blow up as you'd expect them to. Exactly. Mm. It's a tinderbox of fandom. I was at a VIP lunch with Paul McGann. 
great guy. Great guy. Um, you know, really, as you said, really chilled. Had a really good conversation with him about the Beatles and Massive Attack, uh, the bands. One thing I noticed was in this convention, he was paired up with a Z-list actor from Enterprise. I can't remember his name. The, um, Dominic Keating. Yes. English guy, yeah. Um, in this VIP event, there was obviously a throng of people around Paul, and poor old Dominic was sort of left with the, how can I say, table nine people from fandom there. <laughs> and after 20 minutes, he did a Briggsy and just basically said, George Costanza, that's it, I'm gone! You know, just walked out the room, uh, never to be seen again. A bit like his career, really. And, and yeah, look, we probably should make that point, because... What we've discovered over the years, both from our experience and watching the experience of others, again, you treat human beings as human beings. Nicola Bryant sits down at your table and you actually just talk to her about what's she doing, what's her husband up to. Like I don't we had think a really we good... even talked to Dr. Her we about Dr. Her at all. No. Uh, we mentioned we were really into the bill at that stage and she started talking about actors that she knew That's in the right. bill. Yeah. She found out I was doing a politics degree and her husband was there said, oh, I'm a lecturer in politics at... In, in the US, let's have a, you know, what's going on with all this One Nation stuff. Yeah, that's right. And, and we've had really good conversations, but you do get fans that just don't know the boundaries yeah. and just talk at these people in a really uncomfortable way. Yeah. Like like the fan who, um, I think, remember at, uh, one of the Lords of Times who, who criticised Colin Baker's singing Yes, I've got thought, that written down, actually, oh, yes. And said, yes. oh, you should have done that in a different key. It was um, pretty uncomfortable, actually, yeah, poor poor Colin. There was a VIP thing again. You know, luckily I got to go to it. It was John Leeson and his wife on the table to begin with, and Colin Baker was another table with more Table 9 types. And I was having a lovely conversation with John Leeson's missus about North Wales and, and holiday destinations there. And all of a sudden you hear Colin Baker scream out, Rotate! And basically, you know, he comes onto our table. And the first thing that uh, somebody says was, my mate Rob Lloyd goes to him, so this Eric Sabre guy, you know, what's, what's going on with you and him? Goodness. And that just set him off for like 40 minutes. You could not get a word in about... Um, about anything, but uh, yeah, it was actually a very nice guy, Colin. And I went to a, a dinner later on, Armageddon had some sort of dinner, had McCoy, McGann and Aldred there. And I originally wasn't going to go. A mate of mine rang me up, goes, look, it's this much, do you want to go? And I said, no, 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 no. Five minutes later, I said, actually, I think I will go. And I got sat next to Paul McGann. Ah, again. And he vaguely remembered me from the last time. So, you know, we're talking about him building a house in Nepal and music and that sort of stuff. And again, the table nine types at the top of the table were getting very upset about that McGann was down here. But they swapped around. But then again, we spoke to McCoy and Aldred about Steiner schools and soccer and that sort of stuff. So again, it comes to, yeah, as you said, Dave, don't talk to them about Doctor Who. They've heard it all before. Talk to them about other stuff, you know, other work. Find, find out what sort of people they are. Exactly, yeah. 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 We're very lucky, I suppose, now where, you know, 30 years ago, Doctor Who guests over in our shores are very, very few and far between. And I think the last 10, 10 years has been definitely have an influx over here of guests. Two events. Our friends over at the Sirens of Audio are organising an event, I believe, with Sophie Aldred and Janet Fielding. Right. Which uh, I'm looking forward to. And yes, the professional con people have announced they're doing a Lords of Time 5 in February with at least one Doctor Who guest. More to be seen. Uh, a <laughs> of, of the ones I really want to see, the yep. one I've got a chance is Caroline Ford. I'd love to see Hinchcliffe Ford. Yeah, so oh, yeah. Cartmel. Yeah, we've had a bit of a, a bit of retrospective in terms of our convention anecdotes. Went and asked some of our listeners their favourite convention anecdotes, and they got one from Doc Whom. Whenever we meet any big Doctor Who name, we milk it as much as we can in our podcast. These seem to be old hat to some, but when we bumped into Annika Wills in the corridor at Capital Three, she then invited us to join her for breakfast when we did a big interview with her, and she was lovely and disarmingly frank about the 1960s. 
We queued for the autographs of Matthew Waterhouse and Sarah Sutton at Capital 2. Our Mark, who is Mark, the other co-host on the show, uh, had his House Stammer Walker book, The Companions, open at the full-page publicity photo of Peter Davis and Tyler's crew standing, sitting on the little bridge, thinking that if Sarah and Matthew each signed a corner each, then one day he can get Janet and Peter to sign the other two corners. It would make a lovely memento. Unfortunately, Mark presented the book to Matthew, who proceeded to scroll an enormous autograph right across the middle of it. When we reached Sarah further along down the table uh, and explained to her Mark's uh, thwarted plans, she lifted up the book and called down the table, Matthew! I think Janet will be having words with you when she sees this. Also, our Mark met Terence Dix and rather boldly told him, I think you really ought to be knighted for your uh, services literacy. And Terence thought for a second before replying, Yes, sure you are. Um, we have another one here, which which is Mark from the Diddly Dumb podcast. I remember seeing one of my childhood favourite Who stars at the standing at the hotel bar at my first convention. I was so excited to see them that all I managed to blurt out was, "I don't know anyone else who likes you, but I think you're really great." <laughs> <laughs> Which felt like a compliment in my head, but sounded somewhat different in my ears. <laughs> <laughs> Their face plummeted from delight to confused hurt, like it had just fallen off the ninth floor balcony. <laughs> no, note he doesn't actually say who that was. No, no, no. Cue uh, Spider-Man sound effects. I've also got one here from Jack Bowman, uh, 2021, who said, Well, I did J&T's seconds to last convention appearance as an interviewer. Hmm. And at his last appearance, uh, he was a liver failure mess who couldn't speak. Hmm. Oh, That's poor old J&T. And Dave, get you to read this one, please. So this is from Jason McLaughlin, who says, Here's a nice anecdote about the legend that was Bernard Cribbins. I was lucky enough to meet him twice in his lifetime. Once in 2013 at Collector Mania in Milton Keynes, and once at London Comic Con in 2017. Both occasions he was an absolute delight, but it's the second meeting that sticks in my mind. I was with a friend who wanted to meet Wilf, and let's just say she is quite ample in the chest area. This is starting to sound like a carry-on movie. <laughs> matron. Nice. It was first thing in the morning, and we were virtually first in the queue. Bernard was a delight as always, and as he handed my friend her autograph, she asked if she could have a selfie. This was well before Con started charging for photos at signing desks. Bernard, quick as a flash, took a microsecond glimpse at my friend's cleavage, and in true carry-on style said... You can have anything you like, darling, with a cheeky wink. Well, that made our day. My friend couldn't shut up about how great it was Bernard had flirted with her. Well done, Bernard. Yeah, so hopefully that was a bit of uh, fun down memory lane. It's a version of therapy, really, in some <laughs> cases, wasn't it, really? Hopefully you all found that a bit interesting. Uh, it was nice to reminisce for a little bit about the, the good old days and uh, not-so-good old days. Yeah, one, one day we'll tell the real stories behind some of these, but... Uh... Yes. <laughs> Yes. After legal scrutiny. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, that'll probably be the posthumous podcast, I think. <laughs> if you're hearing this podcast, we are dead. Here's what really happened in fandom. Exactly. And as Rob tells us, the dead cunts. <laughs> be sued. Frequently so. tells us. And now it's time for Hot On. Target Book Club. <laughs> Yes, it's Target Book Club time, and usually we have a theme around these novels. Last year was, I think, One Hit Wonders, where people uh, only got to novelise their story once, and most of the time it's probably a good reason for that. Uh, Christmas in July was The Master. Yes, yes, it was Master, exactly right, not with uh, Cesar Romero. And this one, we've actually uh, themed 
the Dalek stories from the classic era, except for one. Yes, we had a rule that no one could pick Remembrance because we all know it's a fantastic top five. But we don't, we don't need to revisit that. <laughs> no, one. it's been discussed many, many times. So yes. uh, we thought we'd uh, cast it out a bit further. And Dave, which one did you select? I selected The Chase. Richard? I read a book called Doctor Who and an Exciting Adventure with the Daleks. Excellent. Now, I know uh, Rob will be uh, talking about Genesis of the Daleks when he looks up, when we all look up at the time scanner. And I read Planet of the Daleks. Now, let's do them in broadcast order. So, Richard, Yay! it is you up first. As I said, I read a novel called Doctor Who and an Exciting Adventure with the Daleks. Now, this is obviously the first Doctor Who book. Now, is that the original paperback? Uh, that like, is the original paperback. Wow. Um, this book was first published in 1964 in hardback mm-hmm. uh, by Frederick Muller Limited. Oh, yes. Um, and as I said, it is the original Doctor Who novel. I have here in my hand the a later edition, which is the Armada paperback for boys and girls at the princely sum of two and six, mm. uh, which was published in 1965. Um, it is the first Doctor Who paperback. Wow. Yeah. This edition is unique in that it doesn't use the internal illustrations that were in the original hardback printing by an artist called Arnold Schwartzman, um, and they were used Mm. when Target reprinted their Muller editions later on. Um, This actually has a new front cover and new internal illustrations done by an artist called Peter Archer. The cover's quite striking. It looks more like Adam Adamant than uh, Doctor Who, it but it still looks pretty cool. Actually, the yes. cape and whatever. Yeah, it's very nice. Adam it's more pertly, isn't he? Yeah, that's really cool. So where there you where go. did you get that from? One of the ones that I didn't get rid of when I sold off my collection. So ah, it's very good condition. Yeah. Anyway, we digress. We do digress. Probably the most immediate thing um, about this book is that the first couple of chapters, because. At that point, this is an exciting adventure with the Daleks. There was clearly no plans to novelise the the slightly less exciting adventure with some cavemen. (laughs) (laughs) Or the slightly Um, even less exciting adventure with the TARDIS. Yes, um, we have to introduce the characters. So this actually presents an entirely new origin story. The first couple Mm. of chapters um, Mm. are a completely new origin story for how how they all met. I guess probably in a real-world thing, this perhaps is one of the earliest sort of Dalek mania type releases yeah. um, to trade on the popularity of the Daleks. There is, if you look at the Season 1 ratings, there is a big upswing uh, once the Daleks come in in the second story. So I guess there's probably also the fact that you know there's several million viewers or potential readers who haven't actually seen an unearthly child, so mm. maybe don't understand why these people are together. So yeah, so the first couple of chapters are all about how Ian and Barbara come to be with the Doctor. And it's said on a foggy night um, on Barnes Common in sort of South London, I think it is. Yeah. Which is quite isolated and desolate and, you know, deserted and it's heavy fog. And Ian Cheston's driving home after a failed job interview um, at oh. a rocket producing company. Oh, right. Um, he is a school teacher, but he's, he obviously is he's more a scientist than, than a mm. teacher. Um, and that is probably one of the differences with Ian as presented in this novel. After a failed job interview, and he's had a really lousy day. You know, he's ripped his jacket in the morning before he went out for the job interview, and mm-hmm. he can't see in the fog, so he's going to have to walk home, and by the time he gets home, his dinner's going to be ruined and everything. So, yeah, first um, of all, problems, isn't it? Yeah, it is, isn't it? Yeah. But he comes across a car accident. Now, it's where the car has slewed into a lorry, and he meets um, the injured Barbara, Oh, God, and, yeah, okay. Yes, and together right. they discover that the driver of the army lorry uh, unfortunately has been killed in the accident. Right. But without sort of rehashing the whole thing, they then encounter the doctor because Barbara was driving Susan home because of the fog. And they then encounter the doctor and they stumble into the TARDIS. There is a lot of time around setting up 
the whole idea that the TARDIS can travel in space and time and the fact that the Doctor has this wonderful machine and that, you know, he's not just some loony. Uh, Ian thinks that there's a trapdoor or something in the basement and they've dropped down into this elaborate... <laughs> what is the Brigadier says? All done with mirrors yeah. or whatever. So um, there is quite a bit of time spent on that about explaining the concepts and that to, to obviously, to Ian and us, to the reader about how this done. We also see other things like the inside of the TARDIS, like the food machine that produces these little... The Mars, Mars bars. bars. Yes. Yeah, the Mars bars, yes. The Mars bars thing. And Bacon and eggs. Yes, and Ian yes. has a little machine that crawls over his face and gives him a shave and then adjusts the other thing and gives him a haircut. Wow. And whatever. So that's all the setup. Once they get to Scaro, look, we're obviously a lot closer to what we know from the televised Perfect. serial. Probably the other thing with the narrative is it is, I think, the only novel that it's written in the first person from Ian's perspective. So there is quite a bit of stuff in the televised story that's not there. So like Barbara meeting the Dalek for the first time and things like Susan's journey through the forest to get to the TARDIS and you know, meet Aladon and whatever, they're all recounted third hand. Okay. Um, you know, as Ian hears, we obviously learn what's actually been happening. Do you think that works? Um, it does, I think. The side effect is that there's not a lot of the Daleks doing Dalek things right. um, during this book. And in some ways, that's probably a common theme of a lot of the novels. I mean, if you think of something like, you know, the Dalek invasion of Earth, the story actually takes time to show the Daleks moving around London landmarks and yes. being on, which really isn't covered in the novel. No. Um, it's just, oh, shit, there's Daleks, let's get out of the way. But we don't get a lot of those scenes of the Daleks, you know, in the control room plotting and that sort of stuff. It does also mean we don't get the Dalek tripping on the anti-radiation drugs, so maybe that's a small mercy. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so we learn everything as Ian learns it. Um, all the big moments are there. Obviously, you know, they get captured, they escape. Um, the escape actually takes two attempts in the novel. Okay. Um, they have the first thing where they try to block the door and the Dalek sees through it and leaves, and then they, mm. get, they get the second one onto the cloak. Um, there's the ambush of the Thals, and then obviously we have the the expedition or the second tape of the uh, of the old VHS set. Yeah, it is in the first person because of that. Look, Ian obviously is the focal point, and it's really a lot of his thoughts and his feelings as he's trying to make sense of you know this weird situation he's been thrust into. And I guess you can probably draw a parallel there, perhaps to the the early episodes of the televised series where Ian really is the hero and the Doctor is this sort of more enigmatic character in the background. It is Ian here who actively rouses the Thales to fight. If you remember in the TV version, Mm. he's a lot more conflicted about can we ask these people to fight and die for us not here. It's just, we need to get out of here. We're all going to die. You know, we need to attack the Daleks. And he very much leads the expedition in the final attack on the city. Um, There's really, again, no... Um, sort of ambiguity there. He is a bit of a different character from the one we know on TV. He's more cynical and, and probably harder than sort of the you know kindly William Russell. What about Roy Castle? Uh, <laughs> a miles away from that portrayal. Yeah, I think yeah. we are miles away from there. He is a scientist. He's not that nice school teacher character. Mm. He does immediately know that the Doctor sabotaged the ship. Oh, okay. Um, when the Doctor takes the fluid link out, um, and it's very clear the Doctor knows he knows. Right. But, um, because Susan and Barbara. Um, sort of buy into it straight away and mm. really can't do anything. Yeah, it probably also makes far more clear there are some unresolved romantic tensions, shall we say, between Ian and Barbara that, that probably weren't there in a kid's show at, at uh, you know, 6 o'clock on a Saturday night. And at the end, it's very clear there is the beginnings of a much deeper romantic relationship um, forming between them. And the Doctor does actually say to them at the end, look, do you want to stay and help the Thals rebuild their world? Because I can't offer you anything except you know danger and 
probably a chance to never go home. Mm. Do you want to stay? But they obviously have the scene where, no, they make the choice that, no, they want to stay. They want to stay with the Doctor. Just in closing, look, the Doctor himself is probably more in line, I think, with the harder and probably slightly shadier character we see maybe in the aborted pilot, perhaps, I think, than, you know, sort of even what we see in An Unearthly Child. Um, He's far more evasive and obstructive um, in the early parts of the story where they're trying to find where Susan's gone after the car accident and, you know, they stumble into the TARDIS. And he outright, this isn't a case that, you know, they sort of stumble around the TARDIS a bit and he hits the button and takes off. Um, Ian and Barbara both pass out when they wind up in the TARDIS. And when they wake up, he tells them we left Earth ages ago and we're now in... He uses the words, in the next universe but one. But... Uh, okay, right. <laughs> in the but, 49th century. Where it was, yeah, yeah, but he, he has actively made the decision while they're unconscious that, no, we're, we're leaving. <laughs> we're going. Yeah, you, you're gone, sorry. You, you, you're with me now. Hmm. Yeah, so, um, look, the Thals are still a bit faceless. They're, they're still largely there. Um, Christus, um, he gets a much bigger role in this. He and Ian are, are very clearly friends, and there's that moment at the end where they realise Ian's going to leave and, you know, they're never going to see each other again that, you know, things get a bit emotional um, mm. there for a moment or two. Sort of that Vinnie Jones. It's been emotional. It's been emotional. <laughs> um, probably the only other thing, just, just as I wind up, just to wind up, um, I haven't mentioned the other main departure from the televised story, which is, of course, the glass Dalek. Um, oh, the yes. leader Dalek at the end of the story. Yes. Um, there is a short passage in here. We actually get a, an idea of what David Whittaker maybe intended the Daleks to look like. The lead-in is, the second thing I saw was a glass Dalek. He was resting on a kind of dais, and his casing was totally made of glass. Inside, I could see the same sort of repulsive creature that the Doctor and I had taken out of the machine earlier and wrapped in the cloak. Dalek looked totally evil, sitting on a tiny seat with two squat legs not quite reaching the floor. The head was large, and I shuddered at the inhuman bumps where the ears and nose would normally be and the ghastly slit for a mouth. One shriveled little arm moved about restlessly, and the dark green skin glistened with the same oily substance that had revolted me before. Um, they do obviously smash the glass casing and the, they see there's this nasty little scene of the Daleks sort of writhing around on the floor basically as it dies. Yeah, so look, I really enjoyed reading this because it's a novel. There's no budget, obviously, or you know, studio space constraints or anything, so they can tell a bigger story. The Dalek City, it's not sort of you come out of the forest and there's the city. There's this whole ash plain that stretches for miles. Um, you know, and the Dalek City is probably a good mile or two away from the edge of the forest. Journey through the cave is a lot bigger and it's filled with more obstacles. There's a tentacle monster that they fight um, when they're down at the water's edge rather than being suggested. There is actually a whole thing and they're climbing up the cliff and this monster attacks them. Look, they can do more, obviously, with the final battle in the city. It's not a Dalek sort of careering into a panel, blows up, and that's the end of it. They do creep around in the Dalek city to get to the control room and Ian specifically sends two of the Thals, Aladon, and Ganadas, he specifically sends him down to smash the hydroelectric system sure. um, to cut the Daleks' power, and that's ultimately, obviously, what resolves the story. Mm. But, yeah, look, overall, really enjoyed this one. Um, because it's written in the 60s, look, it's probably written at a slightly higher level, I think, than a lot of the later targets, which maybe is a reflection, perhaps, of the expected literacy standards, perhaps, of kids at the time, Yeah, I think. But, look, I mean, we all know the story of the Daleks, so, really, I mean, there's nothing groundbreaking in this it's probably most interesting because of the variances really but yeah i really enjoyed it four glass daleks out of five very good when you're reading that passage uh, about the glass dalek the first couple yeah. of lines around the glass dalek on the dais that reminded me of revelation because that's pretty yeah. much what it was it was the glass dalek on a dais well it was it? and yeah. i think that's they made the point that was the first time it was probably feasible to actually build something like mm. that 
But no, yeah, cool. so no, that was that was actually really good read. I hadn't read this one for quite a while, so mm. real good. One actually quick interesting notes before I hand over. This book and this edition specifically says the Daleks are about three feet high. Okay. <laughs> so I don't know how Ian actually is meant to get into the casing, <laughs> but it does actually specifically say three feet high, whereas in the later ones it's been changed to about five. Does sound like a chumley. It does. Yeah. So yeah, but there you go. That's uh, go and check that out. Very good. What's it Molly used to say? Do yeah. yourself a favour. Do favor. yourself a favour, yes. Yes, thank you. Thank you very much. No now, worries. whizzing from the first Dalek serial to the third Dalek serial, we've got... The Chase. Dun, dun, dun. So I have my copy of The Chase here, which I've read over the last few days. Mm-hmm. Uh, we discussed convention anecdotes earlier, and this is signed oh. by Robert Jewell and by Dudley Simpson. Fantastic. Who nice. actually both worked on the story. Who yes. both worked on the <laughs> yes. story, yes. Yes, very good. Now, yeah. interestingly, this is book 140 in the Doctor Who target range yes it was published in 1989 so it's very much at the back end of the range yes uh, and it's by John Peel mm. and this was of course at the point where a lot of the Dalek stories still hadn't been novelised and it wasn't clear if they would be and this became the first of five Doctor Who Dalek novels that John Peel yes, ended up doing yes. he, did, he did this the two books of Dalek Master Plan shortly afterwards yep. and then a few years later Power and Evil yes but it was very much a case I think of the time that Terry Nation would only let John Peel do those Doctor yep. do those Dalek stories, and then we waited a long time for Resurrection and Revelation to complete the set. Mm, yeah. Uh, so look, this was definitely very much anticipated when it came out. I could, yeah. I could remember even being quite young in fandom that it yes. was a big deal that John Peel had got the rights to go and do these. Books. I do remember that being in DWM. Yeah, that yeah. hey, the chase is coming. This is yeah. this is this, this is, is a, it is a big deal. Yeah. 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 So it was a big deal at the time. It's got a really nice Alistair Pearson cover. Mm. Uh, now the first thing you get to when you read the book is a little preface from. John Peel, where he says, now that we're entering an age where it's possible that the stories are going to one day be repeated or released on video, which we think now we've got the DVDs and the VHS and Ripbox, obviously at this stage it still hadn't been seen on terrestrial TV for a long time, but Doctor Who was Mm. starting to be released and repeated. He says that he's going to write this based on Terry Nation's original scripts, not on the broadcast version. So I was expecting something a bit like your book, Richard, where there was a massive divergence from the TV show. There actually isn't. What, what, what happens is very similar in plot to what you see on screen, but with a few uh, little differences in there. The Morton Dill stuff's done quite differently. All the stuff with the uh, tour guide is out, but you do get the stuff of the Dalek deciding that the best way to punish humanity is just to let this guy live, <laughs> which, is, which is quite amusing. Um, some of the dialogue is a little bit different, particularly when you get towards the end. A lot of the stuff in episode six has obviously been rewritten a bit, uh, particularly the introduction of Stephen was done quite differently to how it was on screen. And also little things like where the Doctor decides to imitate the robot replica and go and try and convince the Daleks that <laughs> it's killed all the rest yeah. definitely was obviously added into the scripts by the, uh, by the production team as a bit of a padding moment because it's not... Oh, in the yeah. book. Yeah. So you, you do get some little differences along that, but mostly it's fairly loyal to the on-screen version. It was definitely a very good read. John Peel is not a fantastic writer, but he's a very capable writer. Mm. It's interesting that his style does a lot of sort of narrative cutaways in mm. that, and Ian thought this might be the case, and then he'll say, Ian was correct in this, and little did he know this was also happening, or the okay. un, you know unknown to the three time travellers, back on the Dalek ship, the Dalek leader was... So there's a lot of those sort of very interesting narrative outside bits. So, so is that how you handle, again, the Daleks doing Dalek things moments? Is yeah, that 
There is a bit of that. And look, it certainly doesn't dive as deep into the Daleks as certainly the Master Plan books would, and then particularly, I think, Power of the Daleks yes, really it does. did. Yeah. Which, which obviously were longer again. Now, this is 144 pages, so it is definitely at the longer end of those mm-hmm. earlier Target books. But it does certainly have stuff like the Dalek leader reporting back to the Dalek Prime on Scaro and the Dalek Prime sort of saying, you know, if you don't get the Doctor this time, don't bother coming back. Um, <laughs> there's, there's, wow. there's, there's lots of little things, you know, that, that we know now, like, for example, it's a big deal that the Daleks have found enough terranium to power this one Dalek ship, and if this is the only Dal- the only time ship they have, because it's all the terranium they have, so all those little things that obviously right. come, come from the future mm. are put in there. But look, I think The Chase is a really good story. I think that it works even better in the book form because, look, as much as I love The Chase, it is not Richard Martin's best piece of directing. No. And Richard Martin isn't a great director to start with. Correct. <laughs> and, and look, the production on The Chase does suffer from the fact that there's about six different locations and they just can't afford to make them all really, really well. Mm. Um, whereas that obviously isn't a factor in this book. So it, it helps stands together really well. It's a really good read. I, I do think it's the weakest of the John Peel novelizations because he's just getting the hang of it, and what comes later, I think, is going to be far superior. Yeah. But yeah, it was it was really enjoyable. And again, if you were reading this in 1989, when we were really just sort of getting into that tail end, sort of second golden era of the targets, where you're getting those longer books, particularly the McCoys, and I think it really was that golden era of the books that I grew up in with as a child, this would have seemed like quite a bigger deal than perhaps it does now. No, I do remember the fanfare about this coming out. In terms of the haunted house scene, how do they sort of deal with that? The haunted house scene is very similar. There's a lot of little knowing winks to the audience there, like it talks about Ian tripping over a photoelectric cell and that activating the Frankenstein monster ah, sort of thing. Okay. Or like Barbara trips something up and then the, the Dracula robot comes out. So it's done very knowingly to the audience. Um, the strange screaming lady is oh, not yeah. in the book. Oh, thank God. Which is, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Whatever she's trying to say. I, I don't know. know. She's very, very terrible. Yeah. yeah. She's not in the book. But, but yeah, it's done in a much more knowing way than I think the TV version is. Oh, excellent. I vaguely remember reading that at the time when it came out, but I had stronger memories of reading the Master Plan books as well than, than that one. But uh, yeah, interesting. So, moving on to the Pearly era. Yes, the Padway era. Yes, so my uh, choice was uh, Planet of the Daleks, a book I hadn't read in about 30-odd years, probably like the rest of us, to be perfectly honest with you. The first Doctor Who book I remember reading was actually Genesis of the Daleks, and I, I always found that a slog, but then again, I was 11 at the time, so anything was probably a slog than the, <laughs> the books I was reading. A uh, bit of context, season 10, Pertwee, is my second favourite season of Doctor Who in the Pertwee era. Really, really solid. It's the dreaded Pertwee six-parter, right, where you got quite a lot of sag in the middle. However, for this adaption, Terence really sort of pairs it back, and it's just almost, it's not like a fan edit, really, of the story, where it's just really hitting those key points and the key scenes about the, about the story. The characterisation of the characters are really good. Um, Weber comes across... He's a bit of an ass, to be perfectly honest with you, than what he was on TV. Look, he's a bit of an ass on TV, but in this, this he's actually quite tiresome, I found. But look, in terms of Uncle Terence's embellishment of the story, 
he's still got time to actually, you know, really sort of draw out a lot of those character motivations where it's not like he's churning him out towards the end where it's one, it's like a Destiny of the Daleks pamphlet, really, isn't it? Well, like he's just churning him out every month. <laughs> this, he's actually got time to really well, sort of... That's not the book with the least word count, though. But this adaption, he's just got a lot of heart into it. Like he's just got a time, you know, to really sort of draw it all out. There's a couple of uh, deviations from the story we all know and love. Like, for example, like the, the, the coat that Joe wears when she leaves the TARDIS. It's an awful bloody yellow Mac or something like that in the in the in the uh, in the TV show where you know she wears a woolen coat, uh, for example, in 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 the uh, in the book. Lots of devices, you know, the the TARDIS recorder, um, which I think is like a Gallifreyan USB stick. It sounds like, to be perfectly honest with you, it's got infinite power source, powered by atomic energy, and then the Thals are carrying stoves with them for to heating up food. With atomic power, I mean, they've got blood. It's like Ghostbusters on their backpacks, you know what I mean? Like lots of atomic power going on, Terence. For somebody, you know, supposed to be quite, uh, you know, planet conscious and everything like that. Yeah. So basically, in terms of um, you know deviations from the story, there's quite a, a quite a few. But I'll just go through a couple of them there. You know, at the end of the story where I do remember the, just going back to the TARDIS. Well. In this case, what they've done is they've actually... The Thals have given them some anti-fungus suits, almost like bubbles, you know, those hazmat suits really to go back to TARDIS so they don't get squirted by the uh, the uh, poison again. Webster, he removes his uh, robes before releasing the virus, meaning which he's invisible at the time. The events of Frontier in Space. Now, if this was a new series thing where they had to flash back, you just hear Castrati and all those cutting scenes and oh, all sorts of stuff where really the, the, the events of Frontier in Space are quite economically told, where it really sort of doesn't dwell on to a lot of, you know, like lots of cutting, what exactly what happens. It's just like Joe's recounting what happened in, this, in as, a, as a vote, you know, in the... Uh, in the voice recorder thing, which I think works quite well. There's not like little things at the bottom of the page saying, please refer to, you know, this, this, the space, Doctor Who in the Space War or anything like that. So it's actually quite uh, economically uh, told. The Spyrodons, basically, it's, he sort of mentions that they've actually got a bit more of a civilization that's collapsed, very similar to what happened with the Exelons. Right. So he draws on that okay. quite, a, quite a lot as well. The, the bombs that um, Weber then takes off, uh, takes away to try and blow up the rest of the Dalek base, the whole way that um, Joe is knocked out when she finds those bombs originally, you know, like it's, it's a bit of polystyrene just falls on the back of her, <laughs> a back of her neck where it's actually like, you know, she's at the bottom of a, of a crevice, as it were, the massive cliff on top. There's bits of stones coming down. All of a sudden she gets whopped on the head. And then the countdown to those bombs go, off is a lot more dramatic so look there's a few deviations from the actual uh televised story as per normal but this is really like a, a greatest hits of that story again it's really punchy terence did a fantastic job on it the cover's really cool as well and i thoroughly enjoyed reading uh this adaption of planet of the daleks which is one of my uh, favorite pertwee stories well done terence this one's a good one it I... certainly has quite a reputation planet of the dalek so definitely one to have a read of oh look What's that up there on the scanner? Hello everyone, this is Robert, uh, recording from my mobile recording studio, i.e. my car. The noise in the background is no doubt the uh, summer storm that's sweeping across Melbourne as I speak. 
Anyway, this is my contribution to the 42 to Doomsday 2022 Target Novelization Book Club with our special emphasis on Daleks. And of course, I've chosen Genesis of the Daleks. The Genesis of the Daleks novelization opens with the following words. The place, Scaro, the time, the birth of the Daleks. After a thousand years of futile war against the Thals, Davros has perfected the physical form that will carry his race into eternity, the dread Dalek. Without feeling, conscience or pity, the Dalek is programmed to exterminate. At the command of the Time Lords, Doctor Who travels back through time in an effort to totally destroy this terrible menace of the future. But even the Doctor cannot always win. And it is that final sentence that reveals the true genius of Genesis of the Daleks, that even after the audience has been immersed in not one but two failing societies, been introduced to a host of memorable, at times loathsome characters, wrestled with complex moral and philosophical questions, and yet at the end of all that, the Doctor, despite his words about delaying the development of the Daleks and bringing together species that might otherwise have warred with each other, the Doctor fails. It's odd reading this story after so many years. A lot of Dix's writing ticks are on display. You see him jam in the Doctor's backstory inside a paragraph, which made me lament the way the character's history during the new series has opened up in all sorts of strange and generally unpleasant ways. Do we need to know more about the Doctor's history with hiding in barns as a child, for instance? Do we need to know he was a child? Dix manages to overcome the clunkiness of that paragraph with its pure simplicity, which was really enjoyable to read. I love how Dix portrays Harry's quiet heroism and determination in the landmine scene. He's willing to stay by the Doctor and risk being blown apart, just to ensure his friend survives the experience. And he's a strong enough character, beneath all the bluff and badly timed jokes, to stand up to the Doctor's insistence he step away. I love Harry, and there should be more of that about. Dix is brutal in his depiction of the wave of attackers and defenders in the trenches near the Carled Dome. Corpses propped up give the appearance of numbers, poison gas, Gween of course, the chatter of machine guns and bodies falling left and right. It's not the cuddly Uncle Terry some may remember, but an accomplished storyteller who can convey mood and pace with an economy of words. Dick's describing the Doctor as running across the battlefield like an ostrich is so evocative and hilarious. Teeth and curls? More like all arms and legs. Sarah awakening beneath a tangle of dead bodies would have to be one of the most grotesque set of words put to print in Doctor Who fiction. Dix has embraced the theme and the setting. This Scarrow is a hellhole, a place of danger with death around every corner. You wonder if the Time Lords were realistic about sending the Doctor on a mission such as this, and whether they wanted him dead more than they wanted the Daleks' development curtailed. Dix's ability as a writer is on full display here. He's taken the building blocks of nations, or was it Robert Holmes's scripts, and built them out to create a fully functioning world teetering on the edge of destruction. He allows us a glimpse into the minds of his characters. We hear Harry contemplate that death would be better than the fate Davros has devised for himself. Dix also knows how to pace the story, with Sarah and the Doctor slash Harry segments conveyed in chunks of text long enough to garner your interest, but not so long that interest flags. These internal cliffhangers are designed to maintain the reader's interest without forcing them to wade through pages and pages of text. A lot of people might think a Doctor Who novelization is just a script in book form, but as we all know, it is the possibilities of conversion to a book that makes the novelization so essential. While the television story relies on imagery to convey the story, the writer has to work harder to gain and hold the reader's attention, and it is that working harder that ensures a good novelization lingers long in the memory. Dix doesn't deviate too much from the nation's slash home script. On the page, it moves along incredibly briskly. One moment, Harry and the Doctor have escaped the bunker and the giant clam. The next, Ronson is being told they are meeting with high-level coloured government ministers. Sarah's and Severin's failed escape up the scaffolding around the Thal rocket is breathlessly told, with an economy of language that still makes you shiver along with Sarah when you realise exactly how high she is. 
While personally I would have loved a longer, more in-depth slash expanded novelization, as per the range at the end of its run, Genesis of the Daleks is still a strong example of the target books. The characters are clearly defined, Davros and Nida remain one of the great double acts, and you have that almost but not quite successful by the Doctor. I'll end by saying reading this book has inspired me to go back and listen to Big Finish's four-part I, Davros series, which more fully fleshes out both the Khaled and Thal societies, Davros's place within it, and how a civilization committed suicide. And what more could you ask? And now, the moment you've all been waiting for, the Dunamore. It is our annual Fan Wank. Now this is where we all come together as a collective group. Uh, we've obviously had a year's worth of Doctor Who, uh, well, on and off the screen really, to go through and just sort of think about things that have sort of troubled us maybe, just we question some of the things in terms of their authenticity and wankery. But Dave, have you got a Fan Wank of the Year award for 2022 that you would like to read out for us, please? Look, I have, and I, I thank you in your introduction for saying that these are things that sometimes trouble us. Yes. Because I've, I've, I've got one that I think is actually quite a serious one and, and is quite troubling. Mm. And um, as, look, 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 this is very, very serious. As we all know, during the course of this year, we had the horrendous incident where Russia invaded Ukraine. Yes. Which is the first proper land war in Europe for a very long time. And, and, you know, something we just didn't think was possible in the 2020s. Yeah. The reaction of a certain portion of Doctor Who fandom to these horrific events was to play the clip from the Zygon invasion. Oh, God. Where the Doctor talks about how peace is the only way and you should never fight. Now, I always said that was a bit of a problematic yes. little little clip, and I always oh, contrasted it to the much, I think, more substantive conversation that Ian has in the Daleks, mm. where they debate about, you know, pacifism is important and looking for peace is important, but there are some things that you have to fight for. Yeah. And I would have thought that your country being invaded by Russia mm. qualified as something that is worth fighting for. And for people to react to that with this just awful, saccharine, unthoughtful speech that basically is saying the Ukrainians should go, we won't fight, we'll just let Russia take us on. And really sort of dovetailed into that, I think, minority vibe in the public of, oh, well, we should negotiate with, with, with Putin, we should work out how to compromise and all this. How, how do you compromise away an invasion? Yeah. How do you say we'll give away a bit of our country? I, I think, you know, that's really quite, quite appalling. And look, to their credit, a number of fans who did talk about that afterwards sort of said, actually we sort of realised that wasn't the right reaction. Yes, these, these people should be fighting for their country, mm. and the people who do need to leave is, you know, is Russia. But I just thought, how out of tune do you have to mm. be Correct. To, yeah. to, to, to react to a really serious event and go, oh, I know how to react to the invasion of a sovereign country with a Doctor Who clip. Yeah. And, uh, you know, yeah. That, 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 to me, that to me was just real, real fan wake. When you, when, and, and, and look, it's a thing we've discussed before, Mark, about these people who sort of take their their life cues from Doctor Who now. Yes. And it's something I don't think we ever saw. Like, okay, no. you could look at a Doctor Who story and go, there's a really good message in there, you know, talking about oppressive taxation, or talk about fascist environmentalists, or talk about ecology, and, mm. and talk about, you know, peace and love, and, and you know, the, the mutants. It's a terrible story, but it's got a good message about racism, you know. You can take away a good message from it, but it's still just a fun show. Yeah. And, and I even saw the other day somebody said, oh, you know, the Doctor gave a really um, problematic view on this topic in this story. I'm like, do you know that the Doctor's a fictional character? He, he probably doesn't have a view on the leadership of the Labour Party. <laughs> <laughs> <You know? laughs> 
I, I don't think he actually cares. He flies around time and space in a police box, guys. Yeah. Like, it's great to take some moral vibes from the show. Correct. But, but for God's sake, it's a piece of fiction. Yeah. Just let's... Just come out and say the leader looks very tired. Wouldn't that be how you... Well, that's, that's how they get rid of oh. these days, isn't it? Really? <laughs> And that's the other thing. Anytime they oh, we'll just say that they don't, don't they look tired. Anyone's going to that's a really clever piece of political insight. No, it's not. So, uh, yeah. and every time they depose somebody, it's always like, don't they look tired? You know, that that to me was a very bad moment of fan wank. I mean, even that line at the end of you know Planet of the Daleks, where you know they talk, you know Pertwee's talking about war. Don't don't aggrandize war. Exactly, it's not thrown down your throat like it is in there the are, new series. You know what I mean? Like yeah, yeah, there are some wonderful homilies in the Perwi era. That one about glorifying war in the Planet of the Darks is excellent. Uh, the one about human greed in Invasion of the Dinosaurs. Yeah. That's a fantastic little homily. Yeah. And even as a kid, you, you take away the meaning of that, yeah. but you've still gone, I've had a great six-part adventure with some dinosaurs. Exactly right. But it's, 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 it's all about just a tone and a vibe. Yeah. It, it's very general. It's, it's not about... Well, and now here's the solution to climate change. You know, it's, right, it's the one thing to, to talk about it, it, preserving our environment and ecology. That's a very important, strong message. But it doesn't need to be about, be about... Not everything's about everything in the real world. Not everything relates to everything in the real world. Some things are just very general. They're not yes. specific. The nuance they've is lost. lost. That, that, they've lost yeah. that nuance of that distance. Yeah. And, and um, I think that that's the problem when, you know, something like Orphan 55... The homily wasn't a nice Barry Letts, John Pertwee homily. It was like something from the end of He-Man. Like, we've learned something That's today. exactly right. It's exactly... <laughs> so, kids, you know... Control the community yeah. service announcement. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so what did we like, learn today? We, yeah, yeah. We, we, we can exploit kids and sell them a whole bunch of toys, but there's a message at the end of it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Be good to the environment and don't yeah, buy plastic. Right. Yeah, yeah so look, I'm, I'm not saying Doctor Who doesn't have important messages. Of course it does. Not everything in the real world relates to Doctor Who. And, and an invasion of a country, you could probably say, you know what? We don't need to bring Doctor Who into this one. Probably these fans haven't seen those episodes of the classic series where they sort of talk about those issues, but they're done in a way where it's not castrati music. And I mean, Pearl does, does a great performance, but the words coming out of his mouth are like, you know, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. That's a really good uh, observation, Dave. So thank you very much. I like that nomination. Richard, uh, you got one here. I actually chose a couple of comments from a, a well-known fan. Oh, yes. Who's Let's that? Let's call him Ian. Oh, yes. Hello, yeah, Liam. Ian. Yes. Ian has contributed to our podcast before. He has. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think actually blocked Rob on Twitter, I think, at one point. I think everybody blocks Rob on Twitter. <laughs> And I have a couple of comments here from Ian, one, one of which says, I wish to state on the record, for once and for all, that I never, ever wanted to make Doctor in distress. I was forced and coerced <laughs> into it. It's been an albatross around my neck for 37 years, and the trolls who use it as ammunition against me are just pig ignorant. I'm so sick of it. Do you reckon he also now disclaims any... <laughs> Any part of Attack of the Cybermen. <laughs> I was just going to say, you could apply that to the Attack of the Cybermen, uh, the theme to Canon and company and everything like that. I mean, look, Ian doth protest a lot. Force is probably a, a very strong word. <laughs> Removal of perks, if he didn't do it, would have probably been the best uh, turn of uh, phrase I would have used. But Hans Zimmer did the music. Look, I think that if Ian just laughed it off and just said, you know what, John yeah. asked me to do it as a personal favour. I know it's not great. Let's all have a laugh. No one would care. It's no. because they know they can needle him about it that they do. No, no. no. I mean, the lyrics are pretty good, aren't they, really? I mean, you know, it was a yeti to shoot her or something. Mm. Like, yeah. There was a brigadier and a master. Can I, computer? <laughs> Who's that, that 
over there. Uh, it is appalling, Ian, and you should now, you should hang your head in shame. It's got Justin Haywood. That's cool. It, it has exactly got right. There's some, and and Bobby G from Bucks Fist. So there is some talent there. It's got Justin Haywood in it. <laughs> <laughs> We've got another one, Richard. This yeah, is the there is another one. This is one actually you sent me. I am deeply fearful for the future of any more Doctor Who animations. Mm. It is such a shame that the Crusade came out in the Season 2 collection box set without any animation whatsoever mm. for the two missing episodes. Mm. But I understand there was simply no budget to animate them. Although Derek Hanley's excellent recons told the story, I still would have wanted some animation, but Russell Minton's hard work in bringing out these crucial, essential tributes to the show's history must never ever be taken for granted, and never underestimated. I love them with all of my heart and my soul. There's lots of talk of crowdfunding, but I'm not certain it could be done practically. But the idea of season one without an animated Marco Polo is an anathema to me. Similarly, season five with a fully watchable version of Wheel in Space made even more upsetting by the fact that they already animated part of the first episode. I want to see the animations back, even if we have to do them ourselves. Before you all jump down my throat and remind me of my past failures... (laughs) (laughs) Albatross around my neck, yes. At least Mission of the Unknown looks superb, and certainly far superior to Web of Fear 3 and the spindly arms and legs of Fury from the Deep. (laughs) Yeah, fair enough. And at least any animation that I would be involved in would not ever contain almost sacrilegious and egregious mistakes like that awful, inexcusable Padma Sambavar. If you are recreating missing episodes, Gary Russell, you have no right to reinvent the stories to suit your mood. No, your duty is to be accurate to the missing originals. Fury from the Deep never had giant seaweed attacking the helicopter or starfish-like weed sitting on the victims' heads. You certainly never saw the original, so how dare you take it upon yourself to screw it up! (laughs) Despite any animation being better than none at all, your interference in what was transmitted makes you the enemy of all Doctor Who fans (laughs) and care for accuracy! Actually, I thought his greatest crime was actually script editing the end of time, but... uh, I thought it was performance in The Famous Five. Oh, yes, yes, yes. We need animations, but we need them done properly. Like the incredibly brilliant, perfect, the Moonbase, which is still unsurpassed as the best Doctor Who animation ever made, to the extent that I no longer consider the story to be missing. There are a lot of very talented fan animators out there, and we are right now putting together a team to animate the Daleks Master Plan. I have a superb, wonderful artist in New Zealand who can draw every bit as stunningly as the Moonbase looked. It has to be done for love, because obviously there is no guarantee that the BBC will use it. But my fear is that if we don't do it, if we don't all team up, especially while those of us with a working knowledge of all the details of the transmissions are still around, then it will never ever get done. So my goal is to find contributors to help me animate all of the missing 24 episodes of Season 3, my all-time favourite season. If the quality is as good as Mission to the Unknown, then I hold out hope that the BBC will release it, knowing only too well that there are no guarantees. Whereas the Space Pirates, Wheel in Space and Marco Polo have to each be priorities to complete forthcoming box sets, Season 3 is likely to be the very last one. Imagine if we could complete Season 3 without treading on anybody's toes. It is my dream to achieve this within my lifetime. I have made it my life's mission to preserve the classic Doctor Who episodes. Many fans hate me, especially for my outspokenness. But if I had never been born, 
you'd be missing over a hundred more episodes than 97 already missing ones. Surely for that and for nothing else, I deserve more respect and understanding than I ever received. After that, yeah. Oh, get a lie down, um, son. Lots to unpack there. Uh, if I'd never been born, Dave, your thoughts for all of the energy and passion in, in that email, there's nothing there that I'm particularly excited or worked up about. No, Look, would it be nice for those episodes to be animated? Of course, it would. Do I understand that the cleaned up Blu ray release of a piece of television from 1965 is not going to be a massive money spinner and the budget? is accordingly limited. <laughs> of course I do. I think we're lucky for what we've got and I just accept that. And yeah, like, fan entitlement is always a little bit wanky, isn't it? From that screed, I heard the words I, I, I a lot and hate. People hate me. Yeah. <laughs> hate keeps me alive. Hey, good luck with the master plan, Ian. Any more, Richard? Or are you okay after that? <laughs> I'll get the oxygen bottle. Yeah. <laughs> have no, to have a shower no. Ace Ventura style. No, I'm fine. I will actually say as one other piece of just short fan wankery, did we all buy the uh, David Bradley TARDIS box set? Did we? Or? No. No. <laughs> no. No, I know people who Aaron, have. if you're listening, I'd be interested to know how well they sold. I will ask him, actually. Get the stats. What well, I want to see is when we get the Tim Trelaw put, we sit with... Oh! <laughs> Don't get me started. He's signing pictures of uh, John Pertwee oh, with his name on no. it. It's true. I saw oh, it. But, but to be fair, somebody walks up to you and says, yes, can please, you please sign this. Uh, Do you say no? You're, you're my audio, John Pertwee. Can you please... Audio third doctor, can you please sign this for me? It makes me uncomfortable. Obviously, the fan is not a real fan. <laughs> <laughs> look, I, look you, you're right, Dave. Look, you can get anything you want signed. That's fine. But to me, when I saw it, like, it was a picture of like, a publicity still from Inferno, and it had Tim Trelaw's autograph on it. I'm going... But, but isn't this yeah. a reflection of modern fandom as well? Because 20, 30 years ago, mm. if somebody gave an actor a photo that wasn't them, and they said, look... I'm actually not comfortable signing this. Yeah. I'm not John Pertwee. I don't think that's right. Mm. Can I sign something else for you? You know, you've got an audio sleeve or something. Mm. And that would have been acceptable. Whereas now, all you need is one person to tweet, I met Tim Trelaw and he refused to sign something for me. He's a bastard. And suddenly, yes. hashtag cancel Tim Trelaw is <laughs> trending. And it's just... I, 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 I get, I get yeah. why they go down you've the You've got that going path. already, haven't you? No. <laughs> I, I get why they go down that easier path. Dave, your insightfulness again pulls us back from the cliff of hate. So you're absolutely right there. I just it, look. Well, it sure just made me sign of his big finish stories or something there, and just say, look, I won't sign that, but I will sign one of the audio oh, sleeves. Look, or as, for as Dave you. said, though, you know, you might yeah. have that thing where you know some kids giving him a or you know a picture to sign, and he goes, yeah, you might get cancelled. Barrowman style for, or what happened to Sophia Miles where she didn't smile apparently and uh, yeah. and something happened and she yeah, anyway that's uh, enough of that alright so I have a few fan wankers alright let's uh, go alright so here we go so basically I'm calling this the more spin in the washing machine award uh, this goes to DWM <laughs> Uh, who who are promoting their Doctor Who uh, magazine special uh, 62 the 2023 yearbook this special issue of DWM celebrates the 13th Doctor's entire journey and looks back on an extraordinary 12 months. This is the bit that really stuck in my throat. The 13th Doctor's final adventures were among the most spectacular in the series history. No, they weren't. This was a time of transformation in more ways than one. Look, Legend of the Sea Devils was mostly harmless. 
wasn't spectacular though. No, it wasn't spectacular. No. Look, I would give it. It looked good, but once you get past that, there's not much. No, there. no. I, I mean, I wanted a Panama Murka, but you know, like, <laughs> <laughs> just... we all did. And it was Evil the Daleks wasn't a great artist. So yeah, I think they're really yeah, pedal shit up hill there. So the best rewriting of history, more than one line goes to Showmasters in the UK, who, when promoting Jodie Whittaker's appearance at a signing event, said. In 2017, she made history as the 13th actor and first woman to play the Doctor in Doctor Who. She made her on-screen debut as a Doctor on December the 25th, 2017 in the episode titled Doctor Who Twice Upon a Time. Her casting was met with overwhelming acclaim and positivity. And in 2020, she was voted the second greatest Doctor in the program's 57-year history, only losing narrowly to David Tennant. So... Let's just unpack this again. Her casting was met with overwhelming acclaim and positivity. Well, I was going to say, hardly going to say, please come to an event <laughs> where the casting of the lead actress caused a large amount of divorce. <laughs> <laughs> and, and hashtag not my doctor. I think they would have just said, you know, uh, she made the history as the first female actor to play the role. And mm, interesting. Overwhelming acclaim and positivity. I don't remember that at the time. Voted second day greatest doctor. Was that some sort of Radio Times poll where the Russian bots were got involved or something like that? I can't remember. I, I do vaguely remember that poll, and it was, it was a very limited audience, and it would have been people who were sort of watching the current series. Yeah, it was basically <laughs> all entries open to thirteen and under, and that was it. Yeah, so well, look, look I, it's, it's it's not unusual that the incumbent doctor is very popular. And does well in those sort of mainstream Well, parts. true. I mean, there was that year, look, you know, it was Tom Baker, Tom Baker, Tom Baker. And then yes, there was that McCoy. year when Sylvester McCoy. Yes. When, I think it was when yeah. the new adventures were really at their peak. Yeah. Uh, look, I read that and I sort of, I know they're going to try and sell t- tickets, but really, okay. A Fan Bank of the Year Award uh, ceremony wouldn't be uh, complete without some Briggs finish. I was wondering um, if we'd get to big finish, but yeah. <laughs> Briggs finish. So, there's so many to choose from, Richard. But I thought narrowed it down to about 40 well, entries. I thought we've already <laughs> sunk the boot into Tim for Law, so yeah, Exactly. Let's go. So look, I've narrowed it down to about 40 potential uh, entries. So best misleading cover uh, goes again to Briggs Finish for or for their release of All of Space and Time, which features Matt Smith on the cover and in very, very small, tiny, tiny, tiny font at the top says starring Jacob Dubman. Now I'm going to uh, yeah, I'm going to show that to Dave there. Uh, how is that pretty small font to you? And a whole bunch of people I have no idea. And, and it, it doesn't even say starring Jacob Dubman as the 11th Doctor. No, it doesn't no. really, no. It's uh, it, it's almost like, you know when you see PDS statements and lots of asterisks with very yeah. tiny ears? It's like that. It's almost like they're embarrassed of it. But uh, Your views may not necessarily match those of Globex Corporation. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, there should have been another title uh, award goes again to Briggs Finish, who should have called their forthcomings The Worlds of Doctor Who. So basically they're bringing out Iranian clients. Oh yes, release, we did right? actually talk We talked about it last that. year. Yes, so they've did. announced it initially, they've announced the, the name of The Worlds of Doctor Who dash Rani Takes on the World semicolon Beyond Bannerman. What they should have called it was either Clyde and the Rani. <laughs> You know I'm going to go to the next one. Rani and Clyde. That's what we had to do. Anyway. Uh, the Best Race and Resistance Awards again go to Briggs Finish uh, for their third series of Torchwood. Amongst us, part one featuring some familiar names in the cast is what they're saying. Joining the previously announced Eve Miles as Gwen Cooper and Kai Owen as Reese uh, Williams. There are more alien hunting escapades are Paul Clayton, Johnny Green, Alexander Riley and Samantha Burt as Orr. Now, did you notice anybody missing on that cast list there from a torturant? There's someone missing out. I just can't put my finger on it. Yeah, exactly right. I'm, I'm sure 
if we had an arrow, maybe we'd be able to, you know, find out who it was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, uh, yeah, yeah, poor old John. Yeah, poor John. Uh, yeah. I'm not touching that one. <laughs> Unlike John, who did. Oh, oh, right, so. All right, now, the winner. For the second year in a row is Chris Chibnall. But this time, unlike my lashings of him regarding the timeless children, I'm awarding this for a good thing. Um, Apart from that. He not only brought back uh, classic series companions with Mel Bush and Ian Bloody Chesterton after 170 years away from the program, he accomplished a feat that Moffat said he, he could never do and would never work. That was bringing back old classic actors into the program. Because Stephen Moffat said, no, you can't do it because it just would look silly and just wouldn't work. Well, Stephen, Chris actually proved you very much wrong on that. Um, not only was their appearances done in a way that was done with love and care, but actually Chris wrote dialogue for David Bradley as the first Doctor. It almost sounded a little bit like him. And not Robodoc from the last times uh, you vote for him, Stephen. Uh, of course, Chris leveraged the Guardians of the Edge from serial Twitter blocker uh, Paul Cornell. But along with the uh, Davison and McCoy scenes alongside their respective companions, this was the best thing about that appalling episode. Uh, and again, uh, the Cesar Romero of the Masters was, for me, the worst new series master ever. Uh, so congrats again, Chris, uh, on the award. It's being shipped to the nearest job centre to near where you live. But given the whole country is on strike at the moment, you'll probably get it in about 2025 in your hands. So well done, Chris, for and this time for a good thing. It, it was a good thing. Look, it was fan wank, but... I enjoyed it. Now, we asked for some correspondence from our three listeners, and uh, luckily the Doctor Who show replied. Hear to that, Dave? I've, I've got it's a vague, vague memory, memory here. here. Yeah. yeah. Uh, hello, Rob. He basically says, Slabs of Jodie Farewell was pure fan rank. But we live in an age where half of fandom's being duped into the idea that as long as some scenes in a story can make you feel warm and fuzzy and nostalgic, previously important stuff like a plot doesn't matter anymore. Extraordinary and spot on. Totally agree with that one. We have a comment here from Jed Sweeney, who's written, Fan Wank of the Year has to be Power of the Doctor. Mm. However, I thought it to be, by and large, good Fan Wank, as it showed that you can get away with Fan Wank if you can write lines like the Master's Dalek plan. <laughs> <laughs> and they seem perfectly acceptable in the context of the story. Mm. Very good. Very good. Thank you, Jed. Oh, so far, third listener. Uh, this is from Bernard who says, the perennial Big Finish Award for Fan Wake of the Year goes to Jodie's Regeneration episode. Mm. So, as I said earlier in our talk, a very strong fan consensus. Power of the Doctor was Fan Wake, but we liked it. For what it was. Excellent. Hello, everyone. Despite my curmudgeonly persona, I'm really a softie at heart. Cut me and I bleed caramel. But don't cut me, you perverts. Anyway, as a result, My Fan Wank of the Year Award for 2022 contains no implicit or explicit criticism this year. There is no Time Lord Victorious to poop all over, or yet another big finish effort to mix and match disparate elements into an indigestible lump of, well, whatever something like that would look like. No, this is a positive nomination. Now don't faint in the back row, okay? My nominee is... Power of the Doctor. Well, an element of it, at least. While I did enjoy the episode, it's entertaining nonsense for sure, however... There are two specific instances, aside from seeing the god that is Paul McGann back as the Doctor. For the love of God, if RTD can't see the value in bringing McGann back, why the hell did RTD come back at all? That deserve nominations. Of course, I'm referring to seeing McCoy and Aldred together, and Davison and Fielding together. 
Those brief little vignettes, see, I know French, are deserving of being recognised. Now, we didn't need closure between the Doctors and their companions, but it was fantastic that we did. These emotional beats that Chibnall raked over, the lingering grief over Adric's death, and whatever caused the rupture between Ace and the Doctor, are something the show would never have had without the Virgin and BBC books from the 90s and the early 2000s. RTD didn't invent the idea of characters within the show having emotional depth and needs. It was fans writing during the so-called wilderness era who brought all that to the fore. So in some respects, Chibnall was acknowledging the efforts of writers like Cornell, the third Doctor ain't a Tory Paul, and Parkin, and Orman, still one of Australia's best science fiction writers, and Bloom, and Angelides, and Aranovich floating along on those rivers of London pounds, eh? And Mortimer, and Peel, a fellow candy jar writer, Please buy Birds of Passage. I need the royalties to feed the budgie, or it gets it in the neck. And all the rest by giving those four characters a chance to share regrets and reconcile all in front of adoring fans. As an addendum, in my head, I've worked out a way for the sixth Doctor and Perry to have similarly met. But let's stick that in the box marked Doctor Who Regrets. They'll nestle in nicely with all the missing episodes we don't have. So hats off to Mr Chibnall. Your appearance on Open Air is forgiven. And that was our 2022 Fan Rank of the Year Awards. So thank you, Dave and Richard, for joining moi today on our annual staff Christmas party. Dave, again, thank you for hosting at Camp David. As usual, it's been a lot of fun and lots of laughs, a bit of tears, a bit of anger from you, Richard, again, uh, reading out channeling in there. But uh, again, guys, thank you both, and uh, wish you all the best for the Christmas and the New Year. Thanks for having us on a couple of times this year. It's always fun. It's always fun, yes. And uh, guess what? What? Next year is our 10th anniversary. We've been going at this for 10 years. Yeah, we've come a long way from the days when Richard and I had to write all the mail for you. <laughs> 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 yes, I miss those days. We'll be back in the new year. With uh, stuff. With stuff. Doctor Who stuff. Rob and I will be back in the new year. And of course with a plethora of guests during the, uh, the year as well. Including, I'm sure, you blokes. Looking forward to that. I can't wait. 10th anniversary special, the three podcasters. Oh yes. The dandy, <laughs> the clown and the angry one. <laughs> On that bombshell, I've been Mark. I've been Dave. I'm Richard. Keep punching! Santa in the balls. Chris Chibnall in the balls. You've just listened to another episode of 42 to Doomsday, the podcast that loves talking about Doctor Who. We'd love to hear from our listeners. Please drop us a line at 42 to Doomsday at gmail.com. We can be reached at facebook.com forward slash 42 to Doomsday. If brevity is your game, we can be found on Twitter at 42 to Doomsday. Please check out our blog, 42 to Doomsday.wordpress.com, where Mark and I occasionally have something interesting to say. Aside from iTunes, you can listen to us via Stitcher and Player FM. If you enjoyed listening to us, leave a review on iTunes. As always, thank you for listening. Have a great week. We'll speak with with you again soon. And welcome everyone. I'm actually in Aaron's Collectibles with the aforementioned Aaron. Aaron, how are you today? Good, Mark. How are you? Just a quick question for you. You just had an influx of new figures. What has been the biggest seller? Well, surprisingly, we sold out of the David Bradley Tardis set and we ordered another lot and that's all but sold out but one as well. And how many of the initial order did you do? Three, four? Ten and then we've got another five and that's in, in a couple of days they've sold out. Okay, and the other ones in the ranges, how are they all fed? The Genesis sets just about sold out, Destiny sets just about sold out, Jodie Whittaker sets... Not the shifting? Oh, people love that Weeping Angel. Oh, okay, right. But not, not, as, not as much as the other ones. Thank you, Aaron, for that. I've been Mark. And I've been Aaron. I've been Rob, just watching from the background.